This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, your coach for life. Just us. Just us two. Hanging out with Jeffrey uh, Liam Simpson. You got it right. I know. I, I keep wanting to say Lamar. Don't know why. But Liam works better for me. And just, for you. I just want to point out that yesterday I showed tremendous restraint. What did you do? I did not disclose to the listeners exactly why you were not here. Oh, you Because didn't? typically, you know, if I were gone because of an illness, we'd spend the entire day or week uh, poking fun at my illness. Like when you had the stomach flu and you got so sick because you had a salad with shrimp and... You were sick all night for a day and a half. You've just proven my point. So, uh, but the reason, part of the reason I didn't disclose what was really going on is because that is probably one of the last things on earth that I want to have inflicted upon me. So I didn't want karma to come around and and bite me. Oh, really? Right. Weird. So are you you saying that the passing of a kidney stone... Uh, the, the pain of my life was caused by in having made fun of you. I didn't say that. Huh. You said that. Yeah. Yeah, I just did, didn't I? Anyway, I'm feeling a lot better. <laughs> There's nothing that makes you feel more like a man than passing a tiny little stone that I named Chip affectionately. Chip 2 because I already had a Chip 1. Uh, from years ago. Aren't those Dr. Seuss characters, Chip 1 and Chip 2? Chip 1 and Chip 2. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm feeling great. Life is, once you've you've had one, but the the pain is incredible, right? A kidney kidney stone is incredibly painful. But I'm good. I do need to drink more. Drink more water. Drink more water. That's all I said yesterday. The problem, when I drink water, where I, every single break here, I'm in the bathroom. Well, you know, that's why it's right down the hall. Oh, is that why? Well, they, they try to put it close to the uh, working, you know, areas so that you do have a convenience. So um, let me just tell you this. I am – I pull up my email this morning. I have an email from Steve Kafusi, hmm. uh, a coach, Stephen Kafusi from BYU. Yep. And he's standing next to my son who's on an LDS mission in Missouri. I thought you were going to say this is the son that's running for student body president. No. Because that would be great publicity. That would be really great publicity. He saw my son. He and some other, I guess, BYU recruiters are out. and This is the time of year, yes. met my son. And his mission companion took a picture, and then he sent me an email. That's great. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So I get to see my son. And my son's looking ripped. Reminds me of my old days. My son's... You know, what, I, I'm sorry. What was that? Hmm? Reminds me of when I used to be ripped, like when you ripped your clothes, or no? Well, yeah, they, my clothes used to rip then too. Hmm. Yeah, those were the good old days before I had three beautiful little kidney stones. <laughs> I thought, I thought raised, it was two. Did you just have another I've had one? Three no. over okay. my lifetime. <laughs> I, like, I, wow, I named did two we miss chip. something? What just happened? No, I've had three over my lifetime. Oh, okay. It's all good, you guys. It's yeah. all good. Just drink lots and lots of water. No harm, no foul. It really – it was a whole body experience though and someday I'll get into it with you. Oh, that's great. Can't wait. Like every part of my body was shutting down. Mm. Sounds like fun. 
Tons of fun. By the <laughs> way, we'll also be posting video. Oh, wow. Play by play. Yeah, we'll get to all that fun. Um, boy, oh boy, what did I miss, though, too? I mean, I, it's always scary for me when I leave you two in charge of the farm. You missed like a 10-minute critique of what? Of the Thor Ragnarok trailer. Yeah. <laughs> I am so glad. And it carried on to another segment. It was great. Boy. The gloves came off. So for it all was, the listeners, oof. I'm so sorry that you had to go through no, that. No, they, they benefited from the conversation. Oh, how do you know that? Did you get a call? Did you get I just feel you can just feel it sometimes that the, the, the audience is just riveted to your The magic what you're was saying. there. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm so sorry I missed it. And I'm so sorry to all the listeners that had to hear it. Well now they know. Now they know not to That there is an awesome movie coming out, Thor and Hulk are gonna fight. Seriously, though, do you think they'd rather hear us talk about a movie trailer or you talk about kidney stones? Oh, for sure, me talking about kidney stones. Hmm. Really? I mean, you really think half of the people out there care, give a flip about Thor? Well, do you know how many people watched the trailer? It's like 12 million in 24 hours. Well, actually, it was about 4 million three times. That's Let's probably true. Okay. Well, How many times did you watch it? Six. Okay. So there you have it. I only watched it once. <laughs> okay. Talk about restraint. So between the two of you, seven times. That's pretty what I call in my world jacked up. No, you're talking like all it's the way up. through. No. Because, I, I mean, it started several times. As so I maybe 14 certain, times you started it. Maybe. And they, 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 count, they count those views. But um, I was reading articles that were describing things that were in it in depth. It's a minute and a half of just wonderment. 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 Have you passed a kidney stone? No. I drink lots of water. So when the stone no is out, that's wonderment. <laughs> Thor, the fact that it's so small but cause so much pain? Yeah. Okay. I have. If you give a kidney stone <laughs> like, to Thor, really? that was the, all that was the Thor couldn't handle a kidney stone. Probably not. Totally. He's, What's you, dr- you drinking water? He's drinking water. Everyone's drinking water now. Everyone's hydrating. We're downing it. I've already had 32 ounces of water this morning, which means so, we got to get to a break. I've had 48. <laughs> have you really? I have. Let's break this up. And I had a 176 ounces yesterday. Well, okay. There is a point that you're having too much water. No. Yeah. The trick is to take drowning. it to the hazing point and then yeah. dial it back a bit. Oh, take it to the wa- waterboard point? Yes. And then dial it back. Yeah. Sounds like a great idea. Okay. We'll get to that fun ahead. Also, we're going to be talking about success and luck. Mm. At what point is it you that made all this success in your life or were you just seriously lucky? And the research shows how you look at it determines how you end up giving back to the world. If you think that you made your success happen, you're much less likely to give back versus thinking it was good luck or gratitude or, de- you know, deity, in, you know, interceding in your life. We'll get to that interesting topic ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? White House spokesperson Sean Spicer had a tough couple of days. Yeah, he did. Monday, he tried to explain how the missile strike in Syria was, in fact, part of a humanitarian effort to help the people of Syria. That's what he really? tra- he's trying to explain it that way in the okay. press conference. So it's, it's about humanitarian. It's kind of a reach. Okay. I, mean, I, I get it, it. They probably had a good reason, like there humanitarian ha- motive. Right. So there was that. And then on Tuesday, bombings involved. Tuesday, he tried to say the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad is worse than Hitler. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. So... You have to, if you're Russia, 
ask yourself, is this a country that you and a regime that you want to align yourself with? He, go, he keeps going, keeps going on. Yeah, he should but just stop. Spicer is likely referring to the tactics used in World War II battlefield as Zyklon B. Pesticides were used by the Nazi regime in its concentration camps. Yeah. Right? So they did use chemical weapons. They just didn't use them on the battlefield. Well, and yeah, they used crematoriums. They used... They, they, they had camps. They used gas. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not the same, but... I think the minute you're pulling out Hitler yeah. ever... I was sitting at home reading this, and I'm like, I can actually hear people's heads exploding with this. Unbelievable. Okay. Ring Hitler, he goes, though he did himself no favors when he was asked about the remark later in the same briefing. Someone gave him an opportunity maybe to walk this back. I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way uh. that Ashad is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I, I, I understand your point. Thank you. I, I, thank you. I appreciate that. There was not... In the in the he brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that, but I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of the towns. It was brought to so the use of it. And I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent. Right. So ho- he called them Holocaust centers. Holy cow! Concentration camps. Um, the idea that Assad was dropping him on his own people in the city. Whereas the Nazis were taking the German Jews out of the city into a camp outside the city. Yeah, it was different. Right, so different methodology, I guess. Just stay away from Hitler. So following the press briefing, Spicer released an additional statement. In no way was I trying to lessen the horrendous nature of the Holocaust. However, I was trying to draw a contrast of the tactic of using airplanes to drop chemical weapons on innocent people. In an additional statement, that's always good when you have a statement, you have to do another one to clarify more. Any attack on innocent people is reprehensible and inexcusable. He then had to you know, explain more. He went on CNN, and uh, where was that one? That's uh, clip five. But frankly, I mistakenly uh, used an inappropriate and insensitive reference to the Holocaust, for which, frankly, there is, there no, uh, there is no, no, no comparison. And for that, I, I apologize. It was a mistake to do that. So... Four times he had to get the fourth times when he actually did it right. Maybe he's going <laughs> to apologize to Hitler next. Somebody. Somebody <laughs> is still not feeling. So, and then people went to the point where he's a Holocaust denier. Like, well, no, he made a mistake. He's made a horrible, like you said, don't bring Hitler into the yeah. conversation. You're well, fine. It's interesting. And he, that's, that's about as fast as the White House does anything right there. Right. That's the fastest retraction I think ever. That was great. The whole day I was like, wow, what are you doing? The White House on Tuesday accused Russia of helping to cover up the chemical weapons attack in Syria last week, which was determined by U.S. intelligence and foreign governments to be a a sarin gas attack carried out by Bashar al-Assad. You have uh, Rex Tillerson's in Moscow right now. No word on He's going to meet with his counterpart, the foreign uh, secretary or whatever, the foreign minister or whatever his term for their secretary of state. No word on if he's going to meet with Putin. That was scheduled and it was canceled. Apparently, if the first meeting goes well, maybe Putin will see him. Okay. The pre-meeting. The pre- there's a pre-meeting. That's if good. that meeting That's goes good. well, if Tillerson doesn't like walk, in there, walk in there and try to chew him out for being part of all this, then Russia's going to talk to him. <laughs> uh, classified documents, according to CNN, Republican and Democratic lawmakers and aides have now found, have found no evidence that the Obama administration did anything unusual or illegal after reviewing some of the same intelligence reports brought to light by House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez. If you remember that whole fiasco yeah, from yeah. last week. They looked at the same documents. They don't see anything that, that points to what Nunez was talking oh, about. Oh, really? So now was he just so making n- something yeah, up? Yeah, nothing or, there. So, and, and we can't really talk to him because they're all on recess. Everybody went home for Easter. 
So we'll see how that goes. Um, and also, the Trump administration plans to lift the federal hiring freeze today. According to the White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, he briefed the reporters on Tuesday about the change, ca- uh, cautioning that this does not mean agencies will be able to hire willy-nilly. Yeah. So just a few days after taking office, the president imposed the uh, the executive order demanding the freeze, which then offered criticism because the Veterans Administration needs a lot of people to help out with their backlog and helping with veterans. Yeah. And now they can't hire those people and people uh, are still waiting around for treatment. See, it's a system, folks. It's crazy. So, yeah, you missed some things yesterday. Well, and uh, United Airlines. United $250 million uh, drop in stock price. Did that ever bounce back? I don't think so yet. Okay. But it will, right? I mean, I mean eventually. You yes. drag one guy off of an airplane, and then the next thing you know, your stock price loses a quarter of a billion dollars. This is why people need to know that you can impact big companies. Right. You can, but the problem is, the men, the, all they have to do is drop their fares. Yeah, and everyone's and jumped everyone's right like, oh, back I on. I love United. The other interesting part is people have delved into the background of the doctor that yeah. was dragged off the plane. And he's got some shady things that has happened <laughs> in his past. Now, the, the, the problem there, uh, the paper that initially did the reporting was the uh, Louisville Courier Journal, right? right? So it's in that area he lives. So he's one of, he's one of you know, their citizens. So they went and tried to figure out who this guy is. You find out some bad things. Do you publish him? Because the story is this guy was yeah. wrong by being yanked off the plane. Right. Now it's kind of turning to, oh, this guy's kind of got some bad stuff in his background. So then some people are like, oh, he deserved it. No. But, but and so, yes. And then the paper gets hit. They're like, you're just doing PR work for the, the – right. you're, you're defending United in this. You're taking no. a side. and like, well, no, we're just telling you who this guy is and here's some of his background. And, and it it's probably goes back to – this is, again, one of these complicated situations of the world where – you you just probably when three officers board the plane, you probably ought to just get off the plane. Well, yeah, but he didn't, and, and that he paid for that. He paid yeah. for that. But then United can't come out and say what they said. Yeah, they they were saying we're they correct in our behavior, yeah. and this is all legal. They defa- and, you yeah. don't defend a video like that. No, I mean the guy they were yanking on the guy, right? <laughs> and that poor lady in uh, seat eight C. Yes, who was. What are you Screaming doing? the entire time. <laughs> oh, but I don't know. Tension was there. It was crazy. But again, this is – there's how many people on a plane? 150 people on an airplane right. waiting for four to board. And uh, then who gets on are four United Airline employees. They – who was it? Delta Airlines paid like $11,000 to get someone off an airplane. Right. You just pay them money. You just keep their – Everybody on that plane would have gotten off for a price. So if they needed oh, yeah. four people to get off, just keep raising them. They got up to eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So it cost them two hundred and fifty mil, mm-hmm. but it could have just cost them maybe a thousand a ticket, four thousand right. bucks. Come on, you've got the money. I, by the way, on my flight home from Ohio uh, last week, I I got the last seat between two really burly football player type men. Right. Wow. Uh, so fortunate, and they had to they had to take a grandma off the plane for yeah, you to get that they, seat. Yeah. <laughs> they ripped a lady off a grandma. So you off were squeezed in between large people. And it was, but they were like footballish, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was the worst. But still, were they four and a half hours? Who of my was life. sitting in your seat? You were them. We all were. You were all. <laughs> yeah. I like to think of it as sharing the seat. Yeah, and it was so because they were so broad chested 
that um, my arms either had to – I either had to put my arms kind of behind theirs. Mm-hmm. Then it was like all the weight of their shoulders and arms were on me or I had to push my arms forward and kind of together. So I really – I sat there with my arms together wow. on my tray. But I heard that the three of you, four and a half hours, the three of you bonded over a few episodes of uh, This Is Us. Yeah, we're having dinner. Yeah, these guys very, very emotional. They would cry (laughs) at almost every scene. And um, then there's that weird moment where you need to go to the bathroom, Mm. but you don't. You're like uh, everyone's going to have to move. Yeah, and this could take an hour. Right. But then you're like, well, I better get get it started. Yeah, because you're going to land at some point. That's probably why I got the old kidney stuff because I didn't hydrate well during that trip. Because you didn't want to have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I didn't want to have to b- bother everybody. There's like some gravitational forces mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, plus, yeah, just the G's we were pulling <laughs> as we're flying in that airplane. Oh, boy, the tangled web. Okay, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking success and luck Good fortune. Did you earn it? Was it a was it luck? Was it a gift? Was it a blessing? And does it matter how you look at it? We think it does. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Parents teach their children that if they work hard, it will pay off, right? Although we teach our children that a cultivation of talent, sweat, and tears is what helps us to succeed, there might be a little more to the equation. And uh, psychologically, it actually might do better for us and for the rest of the world if we would start to look at luck and the impact uh, luck has on whether we succeed or not instead of just giving, you know, attributing all of our success to ourselves. Today joining us is Dr. Robert H. Frank. He's a professor of management and economics at Cornell University and the author of the book Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. And he's here to help us answer some questions on the subject. Uh, Dr. Robert H. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is um, such an interesting discussion because what does does an economics professor – why are you talking about luck? Uh, I got interested in luck, I think, primarily because I've been uh, such a conspicuous beneficiary of it in my own life. I've had uh, the the good fortune of surviving a couple of near-death experiences and was very lucky in in terms of some career breaks I got early on. Uh, So I think the, the general tendency is that luck doesn't hit us over the head quite as hard as it has in my case, most of the time. And so we're, we're more likely to just overlook the role of chance events in life. Uh, you know, every life is a, a series of thousands of steps. They're small steps mostly, but if any one of them had been different, that shifts the path just a little bit, and then the, the differences accumulate over time. So outcomes that seem like they were under our control and inevitable when they, when they happen uh, – 
really weren't inevitable that could have turned out very differently if if any any one of a thousand little things had been different along the way. Yeah. And a lot of, it seems like a lot of what your point is um, in your book and in the research as well is how you see the event as kind of earned, you know, meritocracy, something you've earned and created and deserved is it creates a different approach to how you approach the world with your luck, your benefit versus if you see it as something that was just uh, kind of chance. No, that's right, Matt. I, I use as an epigram in the book uh, a line from an E.B. White essay. Uh, he, he wrote that luck is not a subject you can mention in the presence of self-made men. <laughs> uh, and I think there is a tendency, if you've been successful, uh, almost certainly you did work hard for a long time. Most successful people are hardworking. They're, they're also talented they got up early, they worked late, they solved hard problems, they vanquished very formidable foes along the way. Those are the natural ingredients of your narrative. They spring uh, very quickly to mem- from memory when you're constructing your life story. But, you know, the little things that may have made a difference, maybe you had a teacher that kept you out of trouble in the 11th grade or, or some uh, promotion you got early on, maybe there was a more qualified colleague who couldn't accept it because he had to stay home to take care of an ailing parent. I mean, those things don't uh, spring as readily to mind when you're figuring out why you did so well in life. And so I think the, the lesson is that uh, if you can reflect on that and, and acknowledge that, yeah, you had, you had, if you'd been born in Somalia, Somalia, things wouldn't have turned out quite as well for you probably. Mm. If, if you could dwell on that for a minute, uh, it seems to transform the way you think about your life, and, and not in a bad way. I mean, it makes you feel grateful for the fact that things turned out well for you. It makes you feel a, a desire to reach out and, and help other people uh, enjoy the, the kinds of breaks that you had. So, yeah, I think it's people are worried that if they acknowledge that they had a few breaks along the way, that... that People are going to want to take things away from them or not give them credit, but that doesn't seem to be the effect at all. Right. People, people like it when you acknowledge that you you had a few break, breaks along your path to the top. Yeah, and I guess it all it makes it more. Um, it seems less mythical, right? Less mysterious, and and we've heard this right. in stories about. Um, I, I guess a lot of the tech gurus, the the. Um, I guess all of these people that we hold up, Bill Gates, for example, happened to have lived and go to school where they were doing a lot of coding as young people. Right. And so he had an opportunity to code more and faster than and, and have more opportunity to do that. He wasn't just pure genius. He was pure genius with opportunities. You talk about a really interesting opportunity that really saved your life um, that you alluded to a little bit earlier. Maybe talk about – your crazy heart moment. <laughs> uh, I was playing tennis with my longtime friend and collaborator, Tom Gilovich. It was 10 years ago now, almost 10 years ago. Uh, he tells me uh, that I complained of feeling nauseated during the second set we were playing on a Saturday morning as we sat during a changeover. He said the next thing he knew, I'd fallen off the bench. I was lying completely still, no pulse, no mm. breath, uh, 
he called out for somebody to dial 911, and then he flipped me onto my back and started pounding on my chest. Uh, he, he couldn't get anywhere with that until finally, after many minutes, he said he got a cough out of me. But then uh, I expired yet again, and he was giving up uh, when in through the door bursts the EMT crew. Uh, they put the paddles on me. They, they got me revived again, and they, they flew me to a hospital in Pennsylvania uh, where they put me on ice overnight. I was completely out of it for uh, two or three days, mm. unable to speak a coherent sentence, but then woke up on day with a clear head, and, and I've been fine ever since. I, I had suffered an episode of sudden cardiac death. Wow. Uh, I, I was told by, by doctors, and, and 98% of the people die, uh, stay dead from those episodes. I made it uh, because just by chance there had been two auto accidents that had occurred near the tennis facility where we were playing. It's five minutes out of town. Five miles out of town would have taken half an hour for an ambulance to reach me. Oh, my way. heavens. But but one of the accidents wasn't serious, and so the driver of, of the ambulance who'd been assigned to it peeled off and came to me, and except for that, you know, I'm not here. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you can say, well, that's fate, that's divine intervention, who knows what it is, but I think it, I was just the beneficiary of a lucky combination of events that day. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you also live in a country that has, you know, medical EMS that can get there and right. that can communicate right. and defibrillate and get you to a hospital that – oh, then they life-flighted you or air-flighted you to a, another hospital where there were experts. So, yeah, lucky but also, I guess, yeah. economically privileged. Is it the same thing? Yeah. Uh, if If you – you know, the luckiest thing that can happen to you is to be born of the right parents in the right place at the right time. So, yes, all that's uh, part of what I count as a, a component of a person's good fortune in life. Yeah, if you're born uh, in a tough environment, you can still succeed and you should try. Uh, and, and many people do succeed, but but it's much, much more difficult to succeed if you come from a, an environment where uh, the are people battling one another day and night, and there's not enough to eat. Yeah. Did, in your research, have you noticed, is there a difference between, um, you know, are some people more luckier than others, or is luck just a, a random percentage that we all experience, and or and those that feel like they're luckier just are looking for more luck? You know, I think if you're alert and and uh, focused, you're much more likely to spot an opportunity that comes along. There's been some research in England showing that people differ a lot in their attitudes about how lucky they are. The people who think they're lucky, those people are actually more likely to spot opportunities when mm. they're given tests. Uh, you know, you, you get a prize if you know something, uh, and 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 they those people really do. Uh, spot the opportunities more effectively than the people who think of themselves as unlucky. So yeah, partly it's an attitude, but but in the end, uh, why do people have that attitude rather than a different a- attitude? I think you know your your temperament is is a complicated thing. It's a it's a product of your genes and your upbringing and and the people you meet. You know, so I, if if you get a good temperament in life, that, you're pretty lucky. In the end. Well, and isn't that interesting? Talk about randomness. I mean, the genetic, random, genetic 
roll of the dice that we all get to pick up our health situation. I mean, even your heart condition probably had some genetic component as well, and that was a yeah. random just roll of the die. Right. Yep. And I, the experiments that psychologists have done, they will put people in situations where they get into a, a little bit of difficulty, and then somebody comes along and offers to, to help them out of the jam that they're in. Uh, they, they reliably uh, show that people who have that experience feel grateful for the help they got, but then they're given a chance in a in an unrelated uh, setting to, to help a person, a perfect stranger. The people who feel grateful are much more likely to help somebody else in distress mm. uh, and, and to donate to a charity that, 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 uh, that they might not have donated to. So feeling gratitude uh, is just kind of a, a, the psychologists are learning. It's, it's kind of a magic elixir. You, you're happier when you feel grateful. Uh, your social relationships go more smoothly. Other people like you more when, when you're experiencing gratitude. You're, you're healthier. You sleep better. Uh, so usually in economics, the, the, the things we have that we value are scarce. You have to husband them. But if you can allow yourself to experience gratitude more readily, but there's no scarcity there. It seems to feed on itself and and, and only generate benefits, no cost. Hmm. Does does uh, feeling gratitude, did, have you found in any of the research, does it matter if you attribute your your blessings in life to a higher power versus just to luck? Is there a difference between those that ascribe it to, uh, you know, intervention from a higher power versus just random luck? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. The psychological research that's been done where, where they, the researchers induce gratitude in subjects, uh, uh, none, of, none of that research that I've, I'm familiar with has made any reference to uh, higher powers. Yeah. It's, it's, just a, it's just a circumstantial manipulation that the researchers do. And it's, and it's, about, uh, it's about gratitude, though, really. It's, do you sense yeah, it's really gratitude? gratitude. You, can, you can be gratitude grateful for any any of a variety of reasons so I, I would not expect that if you feel grateful to a higher power that would be any less effective than yeah. feeling grateful for any other reason yeah it's um because again there's so many there's so many that are that see the luck in their life and and they feel blessed and use the word blessed and um, right, but but really, I guess the bigger point too is whether you call it luck or grace or blessings, seeing it as not you, but just some, kind of the randomness of life, may set you up uh, to be a more giving, caring, charitable person. Uh, Robert, let's take a break. Come back and continue this discussion with you. The luck of success. Your and and your book. Um, what is it? What is it that drives us to this? Uh, gratitude in our hearts for what we've been given. Is it about you and all that you've done? Or is your success in life coming really just from the fact that you are lucky, you are blessed? We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We are speaking with Dr. Robert H. Frank, uh, an economics professor at Cornell University and author of the book Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. He's here today teaching us that uh, if you see your life as something that you've earned, that you're a self-made person versus seeing it that you've been blessed or lucky, you've, uh, you, you know, you struck luck, um, then it might impact and it does impact how you are willing to give back to the community and to the world. So uh, this paradigm, um, it's important. It's important to see how you evaluate your own personal success or not. Dr. Frank, thank you again for being with us. Yes, it's it's really uh, fun to talk to you, Matt. Is this? I, I want to yeah clarify. I want to say that uh, you you don't want to downplay the importance of hard work and developing skills. Right. I mean, there there are very few people who succeed who don't work hard. The the important thing for people to try to remember, though, is that there are lots of people who do work hard and who are quite skillful who never achieve any real material success. And I guess that that is the big scale. That's the determinant is 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 uh, kind of economic success is really what we're looking at. Yeah, I think the book is focused mainly on you know who who are the big winners in material terms. You know these markets are very competitive. The the ones that bestow the biggest rewards that society has to offer, and the people who win in those markets are almost always really talented. They work long hours. They're they're incredibly deserving in that sense. But uh, what we don't see is all the people who tried and didn't succeed uh, on nearly as grand a scale. Those people oftentimes are better than the ones who succeeded. It's just a couple of chance breaks along the way that made the difference between the ones who made it and the ones who didn't. What do you um, and what impact does this kind of winner take all market have on a lot of this? Because it, it does seem that there's a disproportionate amount of people, uh, maybe the one percent or the half a percent now that own so much more than everyone else. Are they just more lucky <laughs> or how does how does the market you know itself impact it? What's happened is that uh, technology lets uh, the person who's really good at something serve a much broader swath of the market now than ever before. So if you're the if you're the best storyteller, uh, you can you can tell stories for the whole world. The internet puts your your content in front of everybody. Uh, it used to be you'd be the best storyteller in the village. Uh, and that was good enough. You had, you had an audience. You didn't get a spectacular payday from that. But if you're the best storyteller now, you can serve the entire world market. And, and, and some version of that story repeats itself in almost every domain. So, so now the, the contest is to see who, who can be anointed at the best of whatever narrow thing uh, they're doing. That person gets a huge reward. The ones who are uh, right uh, bunched up together with that person in terms of talent and effort, uh, the the one who's a little bit better than he is may not be as lucky as the one that had the the good fortune to end up in the winner's circle mm. in that race. So, yeah, I think to look look at it as an inevitable consequence of the fact that you worked hard and you were smart, that's not the way to think about it. Uh, you worked hard, you were smart, and you were lucky is really the, the way to parse it. Yeah. What do you say to the person, you know, at the dinner party that 
that that doesn't believe in luck, you know, believes it was all up to them. They made it all happen. Yeah. What would you say to them as as the person that's written the book and researched it? You know, there there may be a kind of an odd adaptiveness to look at the world that way. You know, I think if you're if you think of yourself as as the captain of your own fate, maybe you're more uh, psychologically equipped to deal with the challenges that you're going to confront out there along the path to a, a successful outcome. So, so you know, I, I wouldn't want to discourage people from thinking that it's all up to them. But yeah. I, I think once once you've made it, that's when it's really important to reflect and 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 acknowledge that it wasn't just all up to you. You were born in a, in a place where you had an opportunity to su- succeed. Something bad didn't happen to you along the way. I mean, there are all these things that it would be useful for you to remember once you've succeeded. Maybe before you succeed, mm. uh, uh, sure, go ahead. Assume yeah, it's think it's about you. you. <laughs> yeah, work as hard <laughs> as you can, do everything you can. But you're saying when you succeed, make sure you look back at the at truly the 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 luck the blessings the the many things that contributed right. to your success and i guess that then turned you more outward huh it turned you more toward being a, a better member of community to giving back to community that makes you more into the kind of person that that we would want to spend time with yeah yeah it, it, <laughs> the guy who thinks he did it all by himself you know that you don't want to have dinner with that guy no no and um, I mean, remember there was the whole big uh, issue a few years ago with President Obama when he was talking to the business leaders and saying, you didn't build that. You know, you use the roads of our government. You use the, you know, the brain power of our population. And he was trying to right. – but there was such backlash about how dare the government say that, you know – they're the bringer of luck. Do you see that government does bring or cost people luck? Sure, sure. The the institutions we have are absolutely essential if you're going to start a business and hope to to make money off of it. If you didn't have the courts and the police and the roads and the schools, you you couldn't even begin to think about doing that. Uh, he he did have a bad choice of words that you didn't build yeah. that phrase really did provoke people. But what I've found, Matt, is that when you talk to successful people, it's it's generally not a, a good idea to remind them that they've been lucky. That seems to kindle a defensive reaction mm. in them. So true. <laughs> Instead, try this. Uh, ask your successful friends if they can think of an example or any examples of lucky breaks they enjoyed along the way. Uh, they don't seem to be angry or, or become defensive when you ask them that question. You can see that they take an immediate interest in thinking about it. Their eyes light up when they can think of an example, and they're, they're happy to relate it to you. And when they, they relate it, that kindles the memory of another example. They tell you about that, too. And before long, they're they're asking, why aren't we investing in this or that to help other people get a chance to make it? Mm. So it re- it really matters how you have the conversation. I, I, I wish President Obama had had a chance to reflect on that before he gave that speech yeah. because it was an important speech, but it didn't have the effect that I think he wanted it to have. Well, and, and it, it seems like we always try to dichotomize an either or every one of these arguments, but... 
what I'm hearing you say is that there's a big and here. And we work hard and the be- the government created conditions that could help you succeed. And right. you struck gold because you hit luck. And, um, and, you know, you're smart. I mean, these can all go together. Yep. Everything has to go right for you to be a big winner in, in the competitive world that we're in now. And, and you can do almost everything right and still not make it. Uh, and so if you do make it, just, just realize that except for this or that. Brian Cranston, uh, the, the star of Breaking Bad, uh, yeah. was somebody I'd never heard of before he got that role. There were two other actors offered the part before he got it. Brian, Brian Cranston uh, would never have been on my radar screen ever, but now he's the most famous actor in his slice of the demographic in, in the world. Yeah, isn't that Everybody true? wants him. Does, it, was, there, he, he was the dad and Malcolm in the middle. Exactly, exactly. There seems to be this uh, this um, underlying lesson that if I if I will invoke that some of my life is inherently lucky, fortuitous, blessed. Um, there's also it almost breeds a humility that it just yeah. as easily could have gone another way. Yes, and and what an attractive quality that is in people. Yeah, the, we, we don't really admire the the person who thinks it was just all his own doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Now, as we wrap up, Robert, we have about a minute left. What would you What would you say to us to teach our What should we teach our children? How do we teach our, our children about luck? What What I I tell students who ask me for advice of that sort, I say, uh, try to re- try to remember if there was ever anything you did that made you feel completely absorbed. Uh, the state that psychologists call flow. Yeah. You know, you're not conscious of the passage of time. Try to find a job that enables you to experience that state. Because if you do, then you're going to get wrapped up in it. You're going to become an expert at it uh, without any of the suffering and effort that it usually takes to become an expert at something. It takes thousands of hard, hard hours of practice to get good at something. But if you love the thing you're doing, then you'll get to be an expert at it. Maybe, uh, given the technology we have now, even if not very many people care about whatever this thing is, you'll be able to supply enough people with what you do to make money. But even if not, you're going to be pretty happy. You're going to be working all day at something you really enjoy doing. Yeah, in a state of flow. Dr. Robert H. Frank, thank you so much for your time. Again, a professor of management and economics at Cornell University and the author of Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of meritocracy. Ah, good to be lucky, isn't it? And uh, whether you call it luck or blessed, we've all got a little taste of it, a little touch of it. We'll take a break. When we come back, our own McKenna Baus will be joining us to do a little mind bender for us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be a little luckier and a little more blessed. Stick with us. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Welcome back, friends. In the studio with us is our own producer, McKenna Baus. Baus in the house, and she's she always brings us a little mind bender. Uh, different ways to look at the same old arguments. Mm-hmm. Today we're talking global warming. Yeah. What a how who could have a an argument about global warming? Well, How about it's everybody. Everybody, right? It's a big hot button issue. And most of the dialogue um, in terms 
that surrounds it is in the sense of how can we cut greenhouse gas emissions? You know, cutting, using less oil, putting less CO2 into the atmosphere. It all sort of focuses there. And that's where a lot of hangups right. sort of enter the issue because people are saying, well, these alternative fuel sources are too expensive. You know, we don't have the tech to, become, you know, use enough energy from other places than just oil. It's not feasible. Right. And so we just end up continually not doing anything about the issue. But what is sort of entering the conversation now is the idea of instead of trying to cut our emissions right now, why don't we look at other ways to mitigate the problem? Sort of instead of treating the cause, what are at least some Band-Aid fixes we can put Hmm. on the symptoms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, for example, what? So what, there's a couple different ones. Some of it is the idea of cooling the planet by shooting a bunch of different aerosols into the atmosphere, sort of creating this barrier. Oh, intro, okay. Or you spray saline mist into clouds, which makes them more white, and then that makes them reflect more sunlight. Away which, from away the planet. Away from the planet, keeping the earth cooler. Things like that. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's- well, Why don't we just all pour a cup of ice- into the ocean. I think that's a that's a good option. <laughs> yeah. That's just my little simple way of thinking about there it. There you go. That's, you know, anything we can all do. Yeah, because we do have a hard time getting people to stop polluting. Mm-hmm. But maybe there are more aggressive ways to to warm the planet. Yeah, and without s- creating more pollution. Exactly. And so what we can do is there. There's scientists are saying we need to really look into these as more options and. It's called geoengineering, Hmm. and it's sort of one of those things that's existed a lot in sci-fi up until this point. But people are like, well, we're not making any progress stopping the problem, so let's try and do something else in the meantime. Um, But – you know, it sounds like, wow, this sounds great. It's really cheap. Yeah. It only takes – costs about $5 billion a year um, and you for can, a country you could, to do If it. everybody could donate to these higher tech prov- or, uh, other methods, that might be easier than retrofitting your entire economy. Exactly. Yes. And so like even relatively less financially secure nations would be able to afford this. So like, wow, it's cheap. Uh-huh. You know, we don't have to change our current behavior. What could go wrong? hmm um, there, but there are some concerns that still exist. There's the issues of, well, as soon as we stop, all of a sudden, all that CO2 that we've been still pumping in becomes an even bigger problem. So right. it really is only a good option if we're using it as a thing to buy us time. Yeah, stopgap. Exactly. That, and meanwhile, because think about it, a lot of the economic issue, I mean, it, it is about economics. Mm-hmm. How do you retrofit China to burn cleaner energy? Without destroying China. Yeah. And I mean, same with the U.S., uh, the only country. I mean, first, you know, polluter is China followed right behind by yeah. the U.S. And per capita, the U.S. is actually a lot, right. lot worse. Um, but there's also some other concerns, too. A lot of people look at it the way they look at GMOs in the sense of like, you're messing with nature. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. Also, one country, you know, implements it here. Well, Air blows this stuff. And so even if you can't isolate it to one area, it's going to affect the whole world if it happens. And there's some trade-offs because it might, you know, cool down the earth as a whole. Too much. Now we've overdone it. Yeah. Well, it may 
you know, be good there, but it might freeze up some Russian ports. Yeah. And so they lose some ports and the monsoon season in India gets messed up and there may be a drought no, in the Midwest. It's so complicated. And so you, you have to be able to really work with all the countries to say, are we willing to work together mm-hmm. and all take some losses in some areas to get this, you know, greater good? And if a country went ahead and did this without the, you know, consensus of all these other nations, you know, there's theorists out there say, you know, that could be the grounds for nuclear war. Oh, yeah. There, yeah, there we go. Now so, we're going to start a whole... But by the way, what would happen with a little nuclear war? That would change the whole it system would, It would cool well. things down real fast. <laughs> nuclear Holy winter. God. It so would. McKenna Baus, thanks for bending our minds the way you do. Um, it's all about learning, folks. That's why we're here, to help you uh, see the good in the world. We'll take a break. Be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's the House of Baus. It's the House of Baus. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, happy uh, walk on your wild side day. This uh, day has Jeff Simpson written all over it. This is the day to call out your inner uh, champion, the part of you that sees the world as no one else can. History is full of those who have utterly changed the world by refusing to be constrained by should-bes. And, hey, good people don't do that. Instead, they've turned their eyes to the sun and gathered their most creative and inspired souls, and they're changing the world. How long can you stare at the sun before you get dizzy and pass out? Once I smell smoke... I know it's time to stop. So I, I always just go by smell. So that's the it's smell my, of your brain frying, probably. Well, or some or part your of eyes. My, yeah, probably my corneas. Yeah. <laughs> but I always think to myself, hey, this hurts. I'm going to stop doing it. <laughs> or I smell smoke. Um, today, by the way, walk on your wild side day. It's also grilled cheese sandwich day. Mmm. Uh, somebody let the dog out. Um, the grilled cheese, is, it's like one of my favorite foods. That might be why I have kids. Do you do anything stuff. special or is it just a bread and cheese? A bread, a grilled cheese, bread and cheese. Ooh, with a little tomato would be great too. Do you use like special cheese or just like It's got to be sourdough bread. Ooh, sourdough Could bread be. makes it great. Uh, no, I think just American cheese. But All then right. you dip it in a tomato soup oh. or even like a tomato basil soup. Why is it tomato soup? I don't know. That just something about that is a comfort food to me. It means it's raining outside and grandma's tending. <laughs> Not to get personal. What era is this from? The 1930s, <laughs> okay. 1920s. It's an episode uh, of Leave it to Beaver. By the way, melting cheese on top of bread is a concept that has been around since the time of the Romans. But they didn't become super popular till the 1920s, which is when my grandma started making them. Oh, yeah. And so dude, depression food? Yeah, because we had a lot of cheese and you could get sliced bread, right? So then all of a sudden, hey, let's make grilled cheese. And I don't like too much bread. I want a grilled cheese sandwich that you can dip and just I'll take about 50 of them. But I don't want too much cheese either. Don't you? No. What's wrong with you? 
I know my limits. I know when I've had too much. Too much cheese, it just makes me do crazy things. It makes me have kidney stones. I thought it was the Diet Coke. No. It depends who you talk to. Many would say Diet Coke doesn't do that. Maybe it was the tomato soup. Yeah, it's the tomato basil. It'll kill you. Uh, Yeah, so happy grilled cheese sandwich day. Also, today we will be talking about the zen of you and me, a guide to getting along with just about anybody. Diane Hamilton will be here uh, uh, actually on the phone with us. She's been on the show before. She's a mediator. She's a sensei, Mm. full-on sensei, and... Is she's, I think, a very inspiring woman, and I'm excited to have her on the show to talk to us about life. Oh, Jeff. Do you know what my sensei told me the other day? What? What did your sensei say? Well, just imagine dojo music. Okay. Imagining dojo music. What is dojo music? You don't know dojo music? Not offhand, no. It's We used to have JoJo music, but yeah. we can't play that anymore. So my sensei told me, yeah. seek contentment yeah he used to uh then tell me some random numbers but he stopped doing that for some reason yeah because you quit this is you got this from a chinese from a crack what are they called a chinese fortune cookie, cookie. Fortune cookie. <laughs> yeah you is that that's how you used to choose the numbers that you would use for your for the lotto did you do that are you telling me he was giving me lotto numbers i don't know what the numbers were for no. But they're, I think they're your lucky numbers. I thought he was giving me the secret of life in number format. Oh, maybe. Yeah. And it's one of those numerology codes that you have to figure out. And then eventually you get to – and you enter the code and then the Holy Grail opens. Right. And Thor's sitting there. I was this close to calling Robert Langdon Where it's the national to decode treasure. it for me. It's the national treasure. You find the constitution that no one knows exists. On the back of the original Constitution. Oh, the, I just want to point out we referenced like a dozen different shows and books right there. Yeah. Well, so it's an overused concept, but it's fine. Uh, some <laughs> would say it's an abused concept or misused. Either way. So much to talk about. We'll get into the Zen of you and me. We all need it here. Um, and also, of course, we'll be talking and, and doing some of the empty news, we call it, the headlines for the Matt Townsend show. In fact, one – is a story about an alleged uh, sausage shoplifter who jumps off of a bridge, and we will be doing a sound check to see which of the five sounds actually was the sound of the sausage shoplifter jumping off a bridge. I don't even know if there's a correct answer. I think it's more of a psychological examination. Yeah, which one in your mind sounds most like somebody that had... It's going to tell us a lot about you. No, that's great. That's great. This will be fun. This will be a lot of fun. So stick with us on that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump declared this week that the United States is not going to war in Syria, despite fears that last week's airstrike may be the first salvo in an escalating conflict. Going into Syria. But when I see people using horrible, horrible chemical weapons, which they agreed not to use under the Obama administration, but they violated it. They said they got rid of them. Hey, look, what I did should have been done by the Obama administration a long time before I did it. And you would have had a much better, I think Syria would be a lot better off right now than it has been. 
The sound there, the interview in a Fox Business News interview. The remarks come as the questions arise around the, con- the consistency in Trump's White House serious strategy. At times, officials have pointed towards military conflict. At other moments, they've suggested the Syrian people will figure out what to do with the Assad regime. So it's nice we now have the president telling us we're not going to war. Okay. Unless next week we do something different. Uh, the president's really more involved than these other presidents. Like he's... He's saying he did more than Obama by bombing, yep. and he tweets nonstop yep. what he's going to do. Absolutely. Okay, good. Yeah, and this morning he tweeted more yeah. stuff that people are reacting to at the moment. According to a report in Bloomberg, Secretary of State Tillerson raised a question that surprised European diplomats on Tuesday. Why should U.S. taxpayers be interested in Ukraine? Tillerson reportedly asked the question during a discussion of Russians' intervention in the country at a Group of Seven gathering in Italy. The French foreign minister said that, the respo- that he responded to Tillerson by saying American taxpayers should want a European Union that is strong politically, strong from a security point of view, and strong economically. State Department spokesperson responded to the request for comment from Bloomberg about the remark, saying that it was a rhetorical device. Oh, they're just, yeah, they're just, it's just words. They're just, re- they're just using the words to do to make stuff happen. It's a re- rhetorical device okay, from good. the America First administration. Okay. So <laughs> Europe's a little, little unease with what's going on. Yeah. Overbooking flights, then rebooking passengers to free up space is legal. The Department of Transportation has uh, general guidelines about overbooked flights and how to compensate barred passengers. Europe has a different set of rules entirely. U.S. Airlines bumped 40,000 passengers last year, not counting those who volunteered to give up their seats. Uh, United booted 3,765 people last year. Airline contracts of carriage state that seats are not guaranteed and are written for the airline's convenience, not the passengers. That's what you sign when you agree Ah. to buy a ticket. George, the founder and president of AirfareWatchdog.com, said of U.S. guidelines, in this case, the passenger has no legal rights. Of course, referring to the man that was dragged off the yeah. plane the other day. Yeah. So that's kind of some clarification So there. everybody out there in listener land, remember that, that you have no rights, the seats aren't even for you. Some people are talking about, why didn't the pe- rest of the people that were yelling and uh, that woman that was saying, this is, yeah. what are you doing? Why didn't they stand up and try to stop it? Well, well the second you stand up... You're interfering with the plane, and yeah. the, after 9-11 and right. the security rules, they haul you off the plane. Yeah. Do you mean why didn't somebody just volunteer and say, you know what, I'll take his place? Either that or you know, physically stand up and say, this is wrong, stop doing this. There's just a better way. You than, just pull out your phone and videotape. This is why you put your headset on and you don't even notice any of this is happening. Yeah, you're like, uh, Close your eyes. Whatever. Listen to your music. Which is what you your, did when they I were did. dragging the grandma uh-huh. off. That, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's when that person got tased right in my lap. Right. Yeah, that was bad. And finally, uh, Dodge unveiled a new muscle car yesterday. Ooh. A 2018 Challenger SR Demon. Ooh, I'm going to look this up because I'm looking for a new car. The Challenger SRT Demon. I think it's called the Demon. Demon. Dodge says that the Demon is the world's fastest production car, able to go from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds. Whoa. Just beating out the Tesla's Model S sedan. Wow. The Demon can also complete a quarter mile in 9.65 seconds, making it one of the uh, quote-unquote 10-second cars that are so coveted in the Fast and Furious movie franchise. Yes. So you get your car in the movie because it is in the movie. This is all part It's of the outright movie. evil. The Demon's 840 horsepower and 770 pound-feet of torque give it enough power to pop a wheelie. It's a that, lot of horses. That's a lot of torque. 
The car is expected to have a price tag well under $100,000 when it hits the market this fall, with 3000 available in the U.S. and another 300 in Canada. Well, when it says it's well under 100000 <laughs> yeah, is it like... Down to forty thousand. It's like, like ninety nine. It, so that's just a little bit under a hundred thousand. If it was forty thousand, that would be the worst description of it. It's well under a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> it's a pretty car, but you can tell it could pop a wheelie. Oh yeah, because the back tires are huge, and the front tires are just itty bitty tiny little baby tires. Right, and I bet you in the movie it pops a wheelie. It's demonic. Yeah, they created a car that you probably just can't drive anywhere. It's too fast. Yeah. That's all fun and games still. You know, Grandpa's popping wheelies every time he drives to the Also, store. earlier in the week, I had a story about a, a, a people who found a bat in a bag of lettuce. Yeah, oh, I love me my right? bat lettuce. A Maryland couple realized they got a little bit more than they paid for when they opened a bag of greens to find a scorpion crawling around Ooh, inside. Oh, boy. They, uh, they purchased their bag of spinach from a uh, grocery store in Chevy Chase, Maryland on Friday when they opened it to make lunch Monday. They noticed the critter moving around. They captured it in a bottle. Um, she recorded it on her cell phone, all that stuff. Six hours later, the grocery store pulled everything off the shelves. And, and she's on the video going, it says triple washed right there on the bag. What does that even mean? <laughs> well, two washes were from humans and one was from the scorpion. scorpion. That, but did you hear the spin that the company was putting on it? No, no, no. That's not our average salad bag. Right. You got the challenge round. That's right. <laughs> you, you have to eat the salad and not get stung by a scorpion. Yeah. The challenge round. So a car too fast to drive and scorpion in your lettuce. <sighs> What's happening to this world? Let's just have grilled cheese sandwich day. Mm. Greatest day ever. Hey, uh, this story totally reminds me of you, Jeff. I don't know why. Uh, an alleged sausage shoplifter jumps off a bridge. A man jumped off a Florida bridge. This took place in Florida, believe it or not. It's interesting. Yes. Weird. On Monday night, while being chased by police officers after he allegedly stole meat from a grocery store, David Randall Bertram, 41, was detained for shoplifting $10.38 worth of summer sausage. Mm. Summer David, sausage. David Randall Bertram sounds like a playwright or something. David Randall Bertram <laughs> yeah, was detained for shoplifting um, – The $10.38 worth of summer sausage. Bertram ran off as he was being escorted to the patrol car outside the store. He was ordered to stop but continued to run across all lanes of traffic on U.S. Highway 98 onto the Brooks Bridge where he then jumped off the bridge to the ground – oh, the ground approximately seven to eight feet below. Wow. So he landed in the ground. I was thinking the whole time he landed in the water. That's kind of what I thought, but yeah. But then you use the the sausage – as a flotation device, right? That'd be one way, yeah. Well, do you remember a few years ago, all these thieves were stealing meat? They were like stealing because they were having barbecues and they were like right. a rack of ribs. Now they're stealing the sausage. Mm. The officer, when they got to him, they ordered him to stop and then they used his taser when Bertram refused to stop. Uh, the report said Bertram resisted the first taser burst, but was given a second round before he was captured. And once they put him in the car, they said the police officers then ate the nicely toasted sausage. Yes. Taze it. How do you like your sausage cooked? With a taser. I love mine tased. Would you take two tasers in order to get ten and a half dollars worth of sausage? Uh, where would I have to take the taser? Yeah. Hmm. Remember, the first rule is it's always most important, location. Location. <laughs> if you have to be tased. Location. I bet the first tase actually hit the pork, right? Yep. And then that's what cooked it. And then the second tase got him. 
That would mm. be the that would be the smart way to do it is deflect the taser with the sausage. Just mm. oh yeah, use it like a shield. Yeah. So we're gonna do a little test now. Oh. Um, some sounds of what it might sound like to jump off of a bridge. We have five different scenarios, and I want you in your mind to be thinking. This is this is our ch- our chance to do a little psychological review on you. Which one of these sounds to you? Most like taser or uh, somebody jumping off of a bridge with sausage. And keep in mind, each one of these contains an exertion sound, a falling sound, and an impact sound. Excellent. Followed by the sound that is Which in question. Which one is most real? Ah, <laughs> oh, come on! Mm. Yeah, that didn't seem like that was... I didn't hear the sausage in there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sausage. Sausage with a very, like, uh, weak casing. Yes. (laughs) Maybe he broke his leg? Or impaled by sausage. Ooh. Uh, That's a bad way to go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Those weren't sausages. That was a twist I didn't see coming. That was dynamite. Those were sticks of dynamite. Explosive sausage. And then here's the last one. Please stop that. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. Why are you here? Yeah, that was was them jumping off the bridge onto the lady who was mad at the bear for eating her canoe. Kayak. It sounds like sounds like uh, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly yeah. and it just keeps going and yeah. going and going. It got really bad, and then th- then there was a bear that swallowed her kayak. Oh, that's a good story. Um, yeah, it's definitely number two. That's a lot of sausage, which is the rule that we always have on the show. Make sure the casings are really thick. You want a good thick casing, not too thick. It almost sounds like a spray sausage, you know, like a cheese whiz bottle. Yeah. You know, those were banned. Yeah. Have you ever had cheese sausage whiz? <laughs> no. It sounds really horrible, though. Mm. Oh, good times. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Diane Hamilton will be with us talking about her book, The Zen of You and Me, A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Anyone. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the uh, fun things that I've been learning a lot about lately is this idea called high sensitive, highly sensitive people. And highly sensitive isn't like what Jeff thought it meant, which just meant he cries a lot. It's not that, Jeff. No, it's not that. High sensitivity is... um... Okay. You're okay, Jeff. Come on, pal. Come on, buddy. There you go. Uh, I just uh, gave him some sausage in some thick casing so he doesn't break it when he falls. Um, Highly sensitive people are about 20% of the population. There's a book out called The Highly Sensitive Person by a woman named Elaine Aaron. And she believes that um, what this sensitivity may be is a precursor to people that have anxiety. So as we talk uh, with people that are anxious – a lot of times they end up um, they end up 
if you ask them, what is it that makes you so anxious? They can't explain it. They just know they get really upset. They get really angry. They get really frustrated. Um, they, you know, there's just a point where they've had it. And we see it a lot in our children where we think, holy cow, oh boy, we, you know, we crossed that point of no return because we, we brought our kids home too late and now they're throwing fits and having problems and all of these things. But one of the things, uh, to, to really be thinking about is if you notice that smells bother you, that light bothers you, that um, heat bothers you, like a lot, not just a little, but like you can't sit there and go to the beach because you hate the texture of the ground or you you hate the sweat rolling down your back, then you may be a highly sensitive person. And you don't – and what that ends up doing is it it ends up making you feel like you're losing your mind, right? Like you're going crazy. Why is it that when I have to go grocery shopping, I am so frustrated by the time I'm done? Don't think you're crazy. You might just be – starting to get overwhelmed because you're picking up so much data as you go shopping. Usually people that are high sensitives get cranky because they haven't eaten uh, or if they get when they're tired, it, it makes life even worse for them. So just know that if, if all of a sudden the little things tend to bother you, that little tiny pebble in your shoe, you are the person that no matter what, you have to stop the minute it's there. If the temperature is irritating, if it's too bright when you go outside and you notice that, if you tend to get a lot of headaches, if you feel um, like you tend to react pretty quickly to things, don't despair. Just go online and start looking up the words, the highly sensitive person. And and, uh, again, the book is by Elaine Aaron, the highly sensitive person. Um, And go see. Just to take a test. There's a little quiz she has on her her website and you can come – you, you can then evaluate if you're a highly sensitive person. And then all of a sudden, it might explain why you feel a little more anxious about doing certain things, going in certain crowds. Anyway, interesting learnings. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. When we come back, Diane Hamilton will be joining us talking about her book, The Zen of You and Me. Stick with us. Whether it's a coworker, a family member, or a stranger, sometimes we allow others to rattle and upset us. But the people who get under your skin the most can, in fact, be your greatest teachers. Our next guest argues it's not a matter of overlooking differences, as is often thought, but of regarding those dif- those difficult aspects of the relationship with curiosity, compassion for those uh, very differences are the path to a deeper connection, a more profound connection. Joining us uh, is mediator and author Diane Musho Hamilton. She joins us today to talk about her book, The Zen of You and Me, A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Anyone. And Diane's been on the show before. Diane, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Matt. I'm I, happy to be here. I, I love what you're doing. I've, I, I, we're in the same city, and I hear a lot about your great uh, mediation and dialogue work. So when I saw this book, I thought, okay, we got to... We got to bring on Diane and let her teach us about the Zen of you and me. Um, now, talk. I mean, Zen, it, Buddhism. Talk about this is a big. This is a big movement in the world. A lot of people are are catching the power of Zen. Try to explain it to just the average person. Well, at the at the heart of Zen practice is really um, meditation, and mindfulness meditation is kind of 
all the rage, as you're pointing out, just because people and uh, science itself is really starting to see the benefits of meditation to our well-being. I mean, it really helps lower levels of stress. It improves our powers of concentration. It opens us up to greater states of happiness. And so I think uh, people are starting to see that all of us, particularly this time with so much speed of mind and our devices and technology and media, that we all need time to just quiet down and, and in a certain way just give our nervous system a rest. Oh, so, so meditation is at the heart of Zen. And you're saying, I mean, you're a practitioner. You're not, you're you you're a practitioner not just of Zen and um, but of of mediation of uh, facilitation and, and helping mm-hmm. people communicate. Um, mm-hmm. So, so do you actually? How do you incorporate this kind of Zen spiritual state into a daily practice of communicating and relating? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, mediation and meditation have the same root. And both those processes, both the practice of meditation, of sitting down, quieting the body, quieting the mind, we're kind of creating um, unity. You know, because we're very divided in our lives. You know, we're thinking this while we're doing that and we're going here while we're preparing to go there. So when we sit down and quiet down, we just become more integrated and more whole. And when we're more whole and we're functioning with that kind of, um, uh, what's the word, like um, coherence is a good word. When we function with that kind of coherence, um, life is just simpler and it's easier. Well, uh, mediation is the same thing. We take parties that are disputing who have disagreements, who are divided, and then they come together and we work to um, bring people into agreement and to bring people to shared understanding. And so basically what I'm trying to do with my book is I'm trying to show people how you can, you can learn to bring um, the, the relationships that you're engaged with into more coherence. And we do that by including the differences not by getting rid of them. That's mm. the important point. Yeah. Is that a kind of a universal problem or paradigm that we have as as humans is to kind of dichotomize everything? It seems like we put everything at odds with each other mm-hmm. when in reality, paradox can exist and it can all go together. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things that we're starting to learn about, of course, is the evolution of the brain. And we know that that our prefrontal cortex, which came much later in our evolution and allows us to think and to use language, that the very the very capacity to think about something or to compare this to that means that we it's our our analytic mind uh, that helps us you know sort of make discriminations. But when we make those discriminations, lots of times we have like really powerful value judgments. So this is good and that's bad. I like this. I don't like that. I'm right, you're wrong, so that we kind of proceed through life creating much more division than maybe sometimes we're aware of. Mm. And division, that one of the things I talk about is that the, the body registers unity or sameness or coherence differently than it registers difference. So when we're in a state of relaxation and we feel kind of one with our environment and we feel like we belong and there's coherence, you know, we probably have, you know, like maybe a little bit of oxytocin in the brain, some serotonin or dopamine, more feel-good chemicals. But when differences arise, it's very wired into our, um, our old fight-or-flight. 
And so what we get is we get a cocktail of stress hormones. So as soon as we sense difference, we start to experience adrenaline. If that difference persists and it starts to become perceived as a threat, then we're going to feel cortisol in the body. So whenever a difference arises, we don't like how it feels because our body is preparing Mm. us to kind of defend ourselves. So we have to kind of start to learn about that. Otherwise, we just react to the feeling and either withdraw or end up in a fight. So it really takes a lot of skill to start to realize, oh, if I'm going to hear about your differences, I have to tolerate these different sensations in my body. And you're saying that's a learned behavior. Yeah, totally learned behavior, because the old evolution is basically telling us to move away from difference. We were more likely to be hurt by, you know, another unfamiliar human being than a predator in nature in our history. So we're really, really sensitive to difference. And as you can see, all you have to do is look at the political climate right now. There's a lot going on around, I mean, a lot of the the problems that we have are related to religious differences or cultural differences. And, you know, so there's this big dialogue back and forth about people who want to kind of tolerate more difference and other people who are saying, no, we need to put boundaries up and keep the difference away. It's uh, it's such a true thing. I've never thought of it as the chemistry. It's basically this, this kind of automatic chemistry yeah. of of the difference that we see as a threat. And then I guess our own internal interpretation mm-hmm. of that, we, we might then go off on other fears we have, other threats it could be, that, and it seems more personal to us. Yeah, that's right. It, it's sort of like it's, it's a little bit of like a perpet, perpetual kind of collapse in a way because what happens is that there's a feedback loop, so I have a thought, oh, there's a difference, and then that heightens my adrenaline and my defensive kind of fight-or-flight system, and then that experience of the fight-or-flight reinforces this doesn't feel good to me, something must be wrong, I need to defend myself, and so the body and mind start getting into a loop with each other. So you have to kind of, you have to quiet the mind with the thoughts, and then you have to, like, use your breath and, like, you know, stay present to what's going on so that you don't just end up in that, you know, perpetual response. Hmm. And... Um, I mean, it works. We know this works, maybe not in kind of the meditative approach, but we like um, I have a brother in law that is a, is a doctor and performs mm-hmm. a lot of procedures on people. But when he was mm-hmm. 16 years old and he went, went in a procedure with his father and his father, it's a weird story, but squirted some blood on him. He passed mm-hmm. out. He had a physiological mm-hmm. response to a situation. And now that same boy man now can go in and do incredible surgeries with blood everywhere. Um, So I I guess we we can we can adjust our brains to do this. I I guess my concern, not concern, but the weird thing is it's the timing of it. Like it seems like meditation takes so much time. But Mm -hmm. but when my wife starts calling me out on something, my fight Mm -hmm. or flight amygdala wants to crush her immediately. Well, totally. So how do we get the Zen into the moment? Mm-hmm. Does that just from our history or is is it our past that becomes present? How does that work? Well, I think I think that the fact that we're talking about it and we notice it is sort of the first step, like for your listeners, just to say that, you know, you have a particular response to conflict or to difference. You might be an avoider. You might be a person who tries to smooth it out and make it better. You might be a fighter. But that's basically an evolutionary response to a, an old um, signaling function in your brain. And that you're, you, you have the capacity to bring your attention into the moment, 
which is the same as meditation. You bring your attention to the here and now. You stay present. And as you learn to do that, you can actually start to create new patterns of response. Now, you're absolutely right that it takes time. I mean, these things are so uh, hardwired. And, 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 you know, the beautiful thing about nature is these responses are immediate. They're quick. It's like we react right away. But it's not really what you do. It's just what you do next in the next moment. Can you find a way to stay present? Can you find a way to, to calm yourself? Can you find a way to remember, oh, there might be something about this difference that's actually good or interesting, and I don't necessarily have to uh, protect myself. I don't necessarily have to prevail. There might be a way I could even be curious. You know, and mm-hmm. once we once we start to see that happening, all of a sudden we're in a we're in a different possibility. And 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 uh, learn to sit in the space. That's what I learned mm-hmm. as a mediator is when people hate each other. Because I had taught c- communication skills and conflict resolution skills for years, and then when I became a mediator and actually had to sit in the space of the tension, it's a whole different yeah. ball game than all these theories, right? Now all of a it's sudden... It's a whole different ball game because your body is completely evolved to want to get you out of the right, room. Right, right. And it doesn't matter if it's your fight or somebody else's, it's the same. And you know? But it's amazing, Diane, after days and years of it, um, you don't even... It doesn't even scare me. Like, it doesn't even... It's... Now you can just... It, it's actually... Now you're like the surgeon. You uh-huh. tolerate blood now. Yeah. And there's a weird piece in that same tense space. And, and I guess it's because I've changed. Yeah. And you know yourself better, and you've gotten used to what those feeling states are like, and you know there's a possibility of people working it out, and you, you've had enough experience now that you know there's a good outcome that's available. When we first start doing this, we've never had good experiences with people working it through. So we just tend to go into avoidance modes. But what, what we're learning is humans are learning how to actually meet each other in their differences and work them through, or learn how to live with them without just simply um, pushing them away. Love it. You know what? Let's take a break, Diane. We'll come back. I want to get into some of the the principles while we're in that space. How we remain curious. You have some. The, the book is it's wonderful because it's it's small, it's handy, and it's very direct to the principle. So we'll come back more with Diane Hamilton and her book, The Zen of You and Me: A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Everyone. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joined on the line by Diane uh, Musho Hamilton. She's a gifted facilitator, mediator, spiritual teacher, author of the book The Zen of You and Me, a guide to getting along with just about anyone. Diane, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. So do you believe, um, and I mean I do, um, do you believe that you really could find a way to get along with just about anyone? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, think so. It may, maybe getting along just means accepting that at a really deep level that you can't really be very close to somebody or you can't necessarily go into business with someone, but you can kind of find it, find some peace in yourself with letting them be who they are. Yeah. And it's also, like you were saying, this is, uh, this is kind of your spiritual journey, right? Every human interaction is a journey really about you and in you. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think in in my life, I I had a very feisty family, very expressive, loving, but also, you know, we would conflict a lot. And I think I, I kind of just wanted to learn in life how I could maintain the authenticity and the passion of my family, but then be able to, to transmute it so that we weren't, you know, getting into unnecessarily, uh, you know, moments of being alienated. It's like uh, I, w- I don't want the conformity where we, we all agree that we're never going to conflict because it doesn't feel very deep or very real. On the other hand, I also want a certain amount of peace and comfort. So that's really been my kind of lifelong quest is how to maintain the heart, the passion, the authenticity with the people I love and at the same time be able to, um, you know, really feel at home and like we love each other. Mm. I use uh, I talk about ego a lot in some of my work as well. Talk about mm-hmm. ego and how it divides us and what is the ego. It's not we always just kind of think of it as, you know, being cocky or arrogant. But what what mm-hmm. is the ego? Well, the ego is really, I mean, it's it's spoken about, you know, in different ways, but, but in the work that I do, the ego is really our self-concept. It's the idea we have about ourselves. So, um, you know, it may be that, uh, you know, I think of myself as a very neat and orderly person, and I keep getting feedback from my wife or my, I'm sorry, my husband or my partner that, you know, I'm sloppy, but my idea is that I'm neat. And so when I get this feedback that I'm you know, that I'm actually not, then I I feel defensive and I have to, like, defend my self-image. And so we go around protecting our self-image a lot of times, and that is a form of difference. The ego is a form of difference because it's really difficult for me to relax, you know, my uh, perspective on myself. And so I'm often in very subtle ways defending my idea of who I am, when in fact if I could just relax it and open to the fact that in some ways I'm neat and in some ways I'm not, then there, you know, there wouldn't be that division between me and my partner. Mm. And I, that's, I guess, the the overarching goal of the ego is to be in control and to maintain itself. Absolutely, yeah. to maintain the idea of itself. You know, if it, if we think about athletics, you know, when you're imagine for a moment that you're playing in the NBA, you know, mostly when you're in the in the middle of a game, you're playing at such a high level, you can't be thinking about yourself. You just have to be executing. You know, if you make a great shot and there's a a few minutes when you're headed to the other end of the floor, you can maybe have your moment of glory and think, oh, I did that really well. But mostly we can't perform at a high level when we have that self-orientation because it cuts us off from what's happening. Um, And yet we get into these habits of just like creating an image that then we spend all of our time defending and it's really a waste of energy. It's one way to think about it. Well, that's a great way to think about it. And so a lot of our, our, the minute I guess we're falling into this competitive nature, like Mm -hmm. even like LeBron James, when he's heading down the court, he's not thinking, I'm going to now competitively drive on my opponent. (laughs) He's just naturally acting and reacting to the situation. And if he can feed his team and get a better shot, he'll do that. If he can, if he can use his teammate to help get a better shot for himself, he'll do that. You're saying the minute though we start, getting into our own concepts and 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 almost uh, becoming more competitive, being more offended, um, having yeah. these very personal experiences, you've probably drifted back into the ego. Yeah, and we're, we're no longer in the game. We're yeah. in an idea we have about ourselves, and we're using our life force and our energy to defend really just a kind of an image and a mirage, when really we could extend our, our, our attention outward and, and be much more effective. 
Isn't that and powerful? We, and we all know what it's like. We, we know what it's like to be in contact with people that spend a lot of energy substantiating their egos and people who are relatively free of it. Yeah. And it's a different, it's a, it's a different experience for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's an, it's an interesting way to say it, substantiating their ego, but making mm-hmm. it, uh, adding to its substance. So I guess this is what a lot of the Zen uh, leaders or gurus would say is that your goal is to become, um, they call it mindful, but really mm-hmm. mindless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just. The, I mean, we need we need enough ego to, uh, you know, care about our well-being and our hygiene and stay focused around our life purpose. Just enough to maintain ourselves, but beyond that, it really is. It really uh, sucks life from us. Boy, it does. And um, give us some other principles. What are some things we should be doing just as we engage, like maybe as we know we're going to grandma and grandpa's house and Uncle Larry's going to be there, who we think is this <laughs> egomaniacal guy that's always making me feel less than. What do I do right. there? How do I, how do I, what are some principles I could remember as I go into that situation? Well, I mean, particularly as it pertains to family, I think the first thing is really just to kind of clarify, clarify our, our intention. And even the people that we don't get along with very well, just remember that there's a way that we can be for each other. You know, that I can be for Uncle Larry, even if I can't be in a long conversation with him, I can basically find a way to, you know, wish him the best. So I think that intention makes a big difference. And then one of the most important communication skills, and I'm sure you teach about this all the time, Matt, is listening. Yeah. Because being able to listen, we give other people the experience that they've been heard and that they're valued. And when you bring listening skills to a situation and you actually empty yourself, hear what someone else has to say, you don't confuse listening with agreement, but you just are generous to give your attention to someone else's perspective, that has a very soothing impact on the environment. Yeah. And and another way of saying it is you're willing to kind of become the same as that person for a few minutes. Mm. And yeah, so that would be so being having a clear intention, using your listening skills and being respectful of other people's points of view, and then occasionally taking the risk to just say, is it okay if I express my point of view for a few minutes? And then being willing to say what's really true for you. And if there's a difference, just letting that difference be okay. We don't have to see the world the same way. Mm-hmm. And I can, yeah, I can still... I can. I don't have to agree with everything you you mm-hmm. think. I I can still have my intent of being one with you, just yeah, but precisely. different. Yeah, yeah, that's right. One and different. That's really. It's like I, I like to tell my students sometimes. You think of it this way: humans develop through difference. So, you know, you're born into a family and you're the same as your family. And when you get to be 13 or 14 years old, suddenly, you know, you're finding yourself being different. Or if you're a parent who's listening to this, you'll notice that your teenagers now don't stand next to you on the street corner. They stand two or three feet away. That's the healthy process of differentiation. So they're becoming autonomous, differentiated um, people. And it's hard on parents because we love that togetherness so much, but we have to see that it's a healthy process. And then if our kids keep developing, pretty soon they do what's called reintegration, where they come back towards the family, but now it's a little more complex because they're the same and they're different. They're no longer just the same as the family, nor are they completely different, but they're both functioning in this sameness and in this difference. And that's a, a healthier, more complex state. 
That is so true. And we, we're so mad that they keep trying to not want to be with us. And then when yeah. they come back, we keep pretending like they are exactly the same, even though not. they aren't. And that's so no. frustrating for them. Right. And that's healthy human development. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. That's just, that's just, yeah, that's normal. Um, what would you, one of the things uh, I, I know that is a big part of uh, meditation, and, and this is—it's just a word, but the word I know has such profound meaning. And I think with your background, you're—you'd be the perfect teacher of it. What is Namaste? Uh, namaste is a is a I believe it's a Sanskrit word. It comes from India, and Namaste is basically a greeting in which uh, your your essential nature or your divine nature that's not different. We all come from the same source. So when I say namaste, I'm recognizing that divine source in you is the same as in me. It's mm. a greeting where we're, where we're meeting each other in, in the sameness of our divinity. Which is, again, if we, if we can find any fellowship on the earth in each other, it's in that. Exactly. Yeah, it's not, we, we have to transcend our individual differences, we have to transcend our cultural differences, and we have to feel into that place in which we're ultimately the same. And, you know, people who are, who have kind of deep spiritual practices, this is not an unfamiliar thing. They understand that. That's powerful. And again, that's such a different spirit. And I think that spirit then changes the tone. It changes your intentions. It changes your curiosity about the other. Because everyone's just on their own journey. That's right. Absolutely. And there, there, there's a point in human development, if I, if I, a little bit more about healthy human development, where differences in, in religion can feel threatening in the way that I've been talking about. Yeah. But then we reach a point where we realize, oh, these are all just different expressions of the same um, source, so that we're no longer afraid of those differences, we're curious about them. So there's a moment where we actually become genuinely more tolerant of others. Now, people who are fundamentalists, and people who are jihadists, let's say, are not able to cope with the differences in others. Yeah. That's why they're, they're warring. But there's the people who can, you know, are, are, you could say they have more capacity for complexity. Love it. No, that's it. And that's, that's, how, that's how we transcend humanity. We appreciate you. Diane Hamilton's her name. Go get the book, The Zen of You and Me. A guide to getting along with just about everyone. Go check out her website as well, dianemushohamilton.com. Great human being and a great, uh, just a great gift to this world. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Remember, this is the Matt Townsend Show, your guide on the side, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy, happy Thursday to you. (sighs) You've made it. Darn it, I just realized I missed April Fool's Day. Well, it was on a Saturday, so you would have missed it anyways. Well, but we, I mean, we would have, if I had been around, we would have probably done something on the show. We are, <sighs> we gave you a golden opportunity to have something crazy happen on the show, and you blew it. Yeah, I was out of town, wasn't I? You gave me the opportunity when I was out of town. We ought to just make up our own April Fool's Day so that we didn't miss it. 
No, it's okay. I think I think we can catch it some other time. I think the people, the listeners, would appreciate it. I think they get uh, a sample of fools every day on the show. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, because it's April. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, fools. Yeah. Okay. Don't put yourself down like that. No, I took you down with me. Oh, you're saying we're all doing it? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good times. Hey, happy Thomas Jefferson Day. I mean, I know you guys, it's neat how you dressed up and everything. I like the powdered wig, Terry. Well, I try. <laughs> and I like the, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, the pants, that, the short pants that go to your knees, Jeffrey. Those are nice. Are those pantaloons? I don't know what pantaloons are, really. I don't think those are pantaloons. No. Are they? I, Let's look them up. Um, and I also like your, uh, your stockings. Those are nice, too. So we're also powdered. Also powdered. They're really just my <laughs> wife's nylons. It's the only way he can get them on. That's right. Gotta... <laughs> He's got to powder them up. Today is Thomas Jefferson's 274th birthday. I did the math yesterday. Did you? Yeah. So the... He's an old man. Well, yeah. Aren't you glad we don't live to 274? Yeah. Like, that would be... Be a little rough. I mean, you want to live a long time, but 274. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty out there. I mean, there. you're born in the 1700s and you're trying to wrap your mind around an airplane. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine how they'd have to pull him off of United Airlines? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> What's with the wig, pal? Well, well carefully because he's 274 years old. Yeah. He's very fragile. He yeah. probably would have been a little more polite about it, though. I'm sure he would. He's a diplomat, right? He's the principal author of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Also, um, by the way, some major events during his presidency. He was the third president of the United States. And uh, he was responsible for the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which I think was a great deal. Yeah, we we got a we probably got the the better end of that deal. Yeah, I mean the, I mean it was underwater. It was, and then we fixed it, and now it's falling back underwater. Right. Maybe he was going to open a theme park or something. Yeah, he was, and uh, and also it was uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition was also taking place during his presidency. Oh, I love that uh, Superman show with Dean Cain. No. Terry Hatcher. Yeah, we're not going to do that. No, that's not what we're talking about. The Adventures of, of Lewis and Clark? No. Hmm. That's a – again, you went to pop culture. It's almost like you need your own pop culture show, like pop-pop culture, <laughs> something like that. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're also going to get into some form of transportation we'll discuss today. Right. And, you know, it's a surprise. We'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> Um, interesting, interesting things going on with Donald Trump as well. He seems yep. to be his ratings seem to be going up. I mean, one bombing later, and you, you know, everyone seems to be. And, and 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 I think what it is is he's he's found a secret. I think he talked this week to the New York Post, uh-huh. to Fox Business News, okay, yeah, and the Wall Street Journal. You know what they all have in common? Conservative. They're all owned by Rupert Murdoch. Oh, is that it? Yeah, yeah. So. He's working with Rupert now, and it's bringing his and ratings And he's been up. heard saying that Rupert's been treating me much better than Roger Ailes ever did with Fox News. Wow. Yeah. He's also saying that um, Bannon's, you know, Bannon may be banned. That's also lifting people's spirits. He, Trump isn't putting forth the positive, supportive message that you would of someone who's holding that kind of high advisor position. And uh, so people feel that's a, uh, a yeah. signal that he may be on the way out the door. It's not a ban. It's not a ban. It's not a ban. It's a bannon. And and if he's out the door, there's other people speculating that that would mean the the alt right media that Bannon came from mm-hmm. would uh, turn their guns per se on the White House and he, attack. Except 
except Donald made a really interesting point. Bannon was only with him for three months. Right. Very but, limited. But he was moving the middle-of-the-road Democrat, mainstream Democrat, long before Bannon came in. So Bannon would maybe move alt-right, mm. but the alt-right have never had this chance of any power no. until right now. Says who? <laughs> so th- this may be their only sh- shot at any power. So would they dare turn their alt-right guns on? Well, if he's not going to uh, follow the agenda... But the reality is, is oh, but Bannon would still have power, like right. Even if he's out of the White House, he would still be able to deliver the alt right for Trump, possibly. So then Trump could still keep him in some form of power, unless he gets his feelings hurt. Then yeah, then it gets ugly. Yeah, so this could be interesting. I think the best position to be is Ivanka Trump. Really? Because she's going to be the president someday. I heard someone yesterday ask, is it odd that if you want to get something to the president, I must first speak to his eldest child? <laughs> it seems like old days. Yeah. That's how we used to do it. Seems a little difficult. Okay. Well, you know what? It's just politics. <laughs> Nothing crazier than politics. So we'll get to all of that fun. Uh, but first, let's do some headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump on Wednesday reversed his previous rhetoric about NATO, admitting during a joint press conference with the International, the, uh, International Secretary General that it's no longer obsolete. The Secretary General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. It's my hope that NATO will take on an increased role in supporting our Iraqi partners in their battle against ISIS. I'm also sending General McMaster to Afghanistan to find out how we can make progress alongside our Afghan partners and NATO allies. In that clip, the president was criticizing NATO for not fighting terrorism, mm-hmm. but now they are fighting terrorism. So uh, d- NATO good now. NATO, Na- good. NATO Secretary General responded by pointing out that NATO's been fighting terrorism side by side with the U.S. and Afghanistan and Iraq for the past 15 years and have given over 1,000 lives to the effort. Yeah, but really? The details that don't matter anymore? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Just standing next to someone saying that, it was just kind of fun to watch. President Trump has said on several occasions that Republicans would be smart to let the Affordable Care Act just collapse on its own, so Democrats would be forced to help negotiate a deal to replace the radically uh, radically change, replace or radically change the law. Now he is threatening to push Obamacare over the cliff himself. Trump wants to use billions in subsidies to help low-income people uh, afford health care as leverage to drag Democrats to the negotiating table, political reports, citing three administration officials with knowledge of Trump's thinking. Trump told the Wall Street Journal the same thing in a 70-minute interview on Wednesday. Former President Barack Obama approved the estimated $7 billion in cost-sharing subsidies, which help insurance companies pay customers' medical bills. Scrapping the subsidies would likely crash the Obamacare individual marketplaces. So they want to take huh. the subsidies, take them away from the people with Obamacare yeah. to make the Democrats go, okay, fine, and we have to go fine, sit down and we'll talk because you're withholding the thing that helps well, people it get works. insurance. When you don't pay bills, you know, people pay attention. I guess. It just <laughs> seems kind a little hard. doesn't seem, yeah, the way we would do it. Normally. All customers who were aboard the United Air Flight, uh, United Airlines Flight 3411 on Sunday, April 9th, will receive compensation for the cost of their ticket. 
This from CNBC yesterday. This specific United flight made international news and police officers were filmed violently removing a 69-year-old passenger who refused to give up his seat on what the airline originally claimed was an over- overbooked flight. It wasn't. Uh, the company has faced major outrage over the incident with CEO Oscar Munoz claiming he felt great shame when he saw the video and the mm. major policy changes are expected to be in, uh, instituted at the airline. Great shame, except they put out like three press releases that didn't to demonstrate shame at all. No. Too little, too late. Yeah. I think what they really ought to do is give everyone in the world a free trip. Yeah. They should have just kept upping the uh, all you gotta do. The compensation. It's all about the money. See what happens. And finally, it wasn't a Big Mac attack, but a hankering for a cheeseburger that prompted an eight-year-old Ohio boy to get behind the wheel of his dad's van and drive, the, drive to the local McDonald's with his four-year-old sister. Yeah. Police officer Jacob Kohler says that the uh, boy pulled up to the drive through window at the restaurant around 8 p.m. Sunday after driving from his home where his parents were asleep about a half mile away. The boy just wanted to buy a cheeseburger, according to police. He looked, he looked up videos on YouTube on how to drive a car. Wow. Figured out how to do it. Uh, witnesses say the boy followed the rules of the road, stopping for lights and keeping within the speed limits. The children did get to eat at McDonald's while they waited for their grandparents to pick them up. And the charges have been filed in the case. Against the sleeping parents. Yeah. Please yeah. tell me he gets cheeseburgers for life now. Yeah, what's McDonald's going to do about that? Nothing. Cheeseburgers for life. That's a, that's a pretty, you know, industrious child. Yeah, looks up on YouTube. How to do it. Yeah. Grabs mom or dad's keys. Gets in the minivan. <laughs> buckles his sister in. Well, dad, safe, safety first. I told you I was going to get a cheeseburger, dad. Do with or without you. Tell me. I'm not going to get a cheeseburger. Did he have the money to pay? Apparently. Can you guys break 100? Unless he did it and they just went, uh, this is weird. There's two kids out in this car and they that just pulled them in, fed them, and called the cops. Can't you see an apathetic teen not even noticing that there was a little boy driving the car? Oh, yeah. Would you like ketchup with that? You guys, you got to see this guy. He looks tiny. He's <laughs> the tiniest man I've ever seen. He's so small. Do you even shave? You know, it's one thing to get the car from his home to the McDonald's. It's another thing to get it through the drive-thru. Oh, yeah. Like, it's tricky. I hope it wasn't one of those merging drive-throughs where mm. you've got you don't know who goes first, or they have the double window oh. where you pay here and get your yes. food here. That could be confusing. Complicated. That is one of the toughest decisions you can make. Which lane should I go into? Yeah, and do I look at the person's eyes or do I just do it by I just take the choice and go first? And then what happens when you both finish ordering at the same yes. time? Do you yes. try to screech in there uh-huh. before them? Wow, you guys eat at McDonald's a lot. Too much. That was just this morning. Um, did you see this new bottle that scientists have developed for water bottles? No. Because the tra- the garbage dumps are filled with water bottles. Mm-hmm. And now the, this company, Skipping Rocks Lab, has recently developed the Oho. I think that's what it's called. Okay. Yoho? Oh, Oho. Oh. Yoohoo? Ho. Ho. Oho. Yoohoo's better, but go ahead. Yoohoo's really good. Yeah. Uh, this is the Oho, which is an edible water bottle. Hmm. It comes from biodegradable brown algae. Is this the one that Willy Wonka made? No. He took a little drink from it and then ate it. But it looks like it looks like that. It's a little ball. It looks like a like a sandwich bag filled with water, but about the size of maybe a tennis ball. Okay. Or smaller, a little smaller than a tennis ball. And you just pop it in your mouth and bite on it. And it, it, it dissolves in your mouth. What, what, do they describe the taste, texture? No taste. So why would you eat something that tastes like nothing? And why no, are you, you know, you're, get you're a, eating it? It's a water bottle. So why are you that's getting, how you consume your water. Yeah, but the bottle holds what? 
like an orange full of water? Yeah, so you would need or- you'd need three or four of these ojos. Ojos. I don't know what they're calling it. Well, if it's like a tennis ball, you just can't pop the whole thing in, right? No, this this is a little smaller than that. So it's more oh, okay. like a, a little bigger than a ping pong ball. Oh, okay. So, so it's like a swallow. All right. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, but mm. I've taken pills bigger than that. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is like taking a, a brown algae water pill. Huh. It's a pretty cool thing. Well, it's an is idea. there algae in the water? No, it's clear as ever. It's beautiful. It uh, it almost it's. They just look like little rolls that you're just going to pop in your mouth of goodness. And then to think of how refreshing. Like think of these marathon runners that are running a marathon. Instead of grabbing a cup, you just grab one of these little ojos. And in like a water fight, they're already in a balloon state. It's like a little water balloon. You don't have to even blow them up. That's great. It's like something you'd see out of a Blade Runner movie or something. And if you want, you can remove the film. Then you just have water. (laughs) Next thing is like, here's your food pellet and yeah. your water pellet. And you it's, move on. It's a really smart thing. And then you could just wash your hair with it, just pop it against your head. You know? These are going to now be served at Chinese restaurants. Mm. Really? Instead of fortune cookies. Yeah. Do you want if your they put fortune, a fortune water in them, ball? Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty cool idea. So that that's the future if you guys wanted to know. Well, good. I've, I've been wondering what the future looked like, and it's a clear plastic ball of water. Yeah. Nice. The future has nothing inside. But when you think about how many water bottles we will be getting rid of, I mean, we're talking billions of water bottles. Gone! Uh, Of course, the brown algae intake will also be up. So if you weren't used to eating a lot of brown algae, guess what? It's happening, folks. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back... We'll continue discussing all that is good to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. Stick with us. The New York Stock Exchange is a busy, complicated, fast environment with buyers and sellers exchanging stocks. This, as our guest uh, Stephen Pressman relates, is similar to a used car dealership. The stocks are sold by an intermediary similar to car dealers, and they can be good deals or not so good deals, and sometimes even a lemon will sneak in. But uh, today to talk about it and help us through the complexity of Wall Street is Dr. Stephen Pressman. He's a professor of economics at Colorado State University and an emeritus professor of economics and finance at Monmouth University. And we're honored to have you, Stephen. Thank you again for being back with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me again. This is uh, this is to me a really I think important discussion. We we found an article that you put together about why Wall Street is like a used car lot, and what I'd love you to do for us, Stephen, is maybe just teach us how Wall Street works. Give us some insight because in the last election we heard all about Wall Street and and some of the speculating and and some of the speculative pricing, and a lot of us can't figure out how Snapchat makes so much money. Um, when they don't necessarily have necessarily revenue models yet. So help us understand what's going on with Wall Street. Well, uh, as I said in my article, Wall Street is basically a used car dealership. Uh, If you think of what a used car dealership is, somebody buys a new car and then they're ready for another car, and so they're going to trade in the old model. Um, And Wall Street is sort of like that. Most of the stocks... Almost all of the stocks that trade um, on Wall Street, there's a buyer, there's a seller, and the broker is the intermediary who takes the 
shares from the person who wants to sell and winds up giving it to the person that wants to buy the stock. Car dealerships are really just like that. You don't want your car anymore. Rather than selling it yourself, which is harder and inconvenient, you take it to a dealer, the dealer buys the car, and then the dealer finds somebody else to sell the car to. There's really no new production. There's no new anything taking place. We're just changing the ownership of the individual firm. Well, and it seems like even at a dealership, the the guy at the Chevy dealership knows Chevys, right? And he knows what's what's unique about this Chevy versus another Chevy, but that's not necessarily true at the stock market, is it? It's true to some extent. There are brokers, and the brokers do specialize in specific stocks, so they have some idea of the the companies and which are good companies and which are bad companies. Um, and really, the the people that are giving advice and dealing are sort of like uh, used car dealers in the sense that if there is a problem, if there's a bad company and you shouldn't buy the stock, then the dealer may not operate in your own interest. The dealer may just be interested in selling you the lemon, just as if there's a bad car on the dealership that car dealer can't get rid of. They may say, gee, this is a good car. There are no problems with it, and you wind up buying a lemon there also. Interesting. So the, the, dealers, you know, the, the dealers in both cases don't have the interest of the consumer. First and foremost, it's the consumer that needs to do a lot more homework. Yeah, I guess we're the ones that would need to, before we, before we go down to the dealership, we need to know what we're looking for, what's a good deal, do the research. I mean, this is, this is enormous. When you look at the fact that the New York Stock Exchange, uh, your article says, trades about $200 billion a day. I mean, there's money to be made just moving stocks, whether they're lemons or whether they're great deals. Mm-hmm. Just the, the same way that the car dealer makes money by <clears throat> buying a car and then selling it for more. Um, the, uh, the stock dealer makes money by buying stocks and then selling it for a little bit more, and they take a small fraction on both parts of the trade. And so it's in the interest of the the dealer or the broker for as much activity as possible. Now, so explain, because one thing that um, has me, I guess, a little worried about the stock market, and I'm naive to the whole thing, is uh, President Trump is sworn in, and then all of a sudden we get a Trump bump in the in the stock exchange uh, with a 15% gain in the Standard & Poor's, and I know that's been dropping uh, ever since, I guess. But why would we get a bump? I guess it's all speculative, right? It's on future change. A lot of the uh, prices uh, of stocks is is a function of what people think is going to happen in the future. Uh, so there is some of that. And, and I think the increase now is somewhere about 11% rather than 15%. There's been a slight decline fairly recently. Um, at its peak, it was somewhere around 15%. I think some of it was just the uncertainty about the election, and nobody knew what was going to happen. And one famous saying about Wall Street is Wall Street hates uncertainty. Mm. Um, And that's one of the reasons why stocks typically increase by a good amount the year after a presidential election, because there's some sense of stability until the next presidential election. But I think there was also a lot of hope that the president would wind up doing things like reducing regulations on business firms. 
And so that's going to cut their costs back tremendously, and that's going to result in more profits. More profitable companies means that the stocks are now worth a whole lot more. Hmm. It's so also interesting, just something happening today. I mean, like him being, uh, you know, struggling to get the health care initiative through Congress also impacts the stock market as well. Um, well, I, I think that that probably impacts directly the health care stocks a whole lot more than the market as a whole. But the market as a whole is also looking at, can Trump get through his agenda? If he can pass his agenda, get it through Congress and make it law so that there are tax cuts, um, people might have more money to spend, there's reduced regulation um, on businesses so they make more profits. There's a big infrastructure program and more jobs are created and people have more money and they're spending and everything looks good, that's going to be good for stocks. The, the stocks, even though they're used cars, um, it's ownership of the individual company. And if that company is making more profits, stocks will increase in price. Hmm. And so the, the, the health care issue going on now is about can the Republicans in Congress pass their agenda? Can I they see. do what the president wants? And if people are thinking, well, wait a minute, if he can't get health care through, can he get his infrastructure program through? Can he get tax reform through? Can he get deregulation through? And if all of that's now uncertain and nobody thinks that the president can do that, then the stocks are not worth as much. Interesting. And it, you, you made it a real point in your article um, that you, you kind of want to puncture the mystique of Wall Street just simply, which I guess is why it works well to call it like a used car lot. We're just moving cars because it helps us – that we kind of understand because the mystique, I guess, gets a lot of credit uh, and blame for, for things that it, it may not even be really doing. And the, the thing that bothers me the most is just the excessive focus on Wall Street rather than what's important, which is – production and jobs and income for the economy. And Wall Street doesn't do a lot of that. Right. That's that's a great point, because Wall Street doesn't care about jobs. It cares about about stock increase. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't care even about quality and, and, the, and producing the right kind of products unless it immediately leads to stock increase. And, and sometimes the immediate increase in stock prices is good immediately – for the firm and for the CEOs and for the people who own the stock, but that immediate price increase may have bad long-term consequences, such as the firm's not investing enough in research and development. It's not putting enough money into training its workers so that they can be more productive in the future. And as a result, future profits are hurt and the economy's hurt in the future, just because everybody's focused on the bottom line right now. Right. And, um, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense, too, which is why exporting jobs to other countries is such a good idea, because it could be directly correlating to stock price. Yeah. You Normally, can make the product cheaper. Yes. If, if they can find cheaper labor or cheaper parts abroad, then the firm can make more profit. It shows up on its quarterly statements. The stock price rises. The senior executives whose bonuses are tied to the stock price wind up benefiting a large uh, amount. And the question then is, can this be sustained? Is this sustainable or not in the long run? And in lots of cases, it's not. 
Hmm. Is and I, I guess we all assume there's a correlation between quality and innovation and stock price, but not. I guess that doesn't correlate always. No, and in fact, if you think of the innovation, a lot of the innovation isn't going on in the huge companies that are traded on stock exchanges. A lot of the innovation are the small companies, the medium-sized companies, and those companies generally don't trade on stock exchanges. Uh, the, The small companies that start up, they typically get their money from themselves, their savings. They'll take a home equity loan. They'll borrow money from family and friends to start up the business. Then the business gets a little bit bigger, and the next step is they need some money. And so they typically will go to a local bank and see if they can get loans from the bank. It's only when the firms start to think much more uh, broader and larger and expanding a lot do they realize that they need enormous sums of money. And it's at that point they go to Wall Street and uh, they print up shares of stock now. They go public and they seek to sell that stock to get money in for that expansion. Interesting. And, and, and boy, that really opens up our minds because we we do hear that, you know, Donald Trump, President Trump has so many, you know, um, billionaires on board who have, you know, tycoons that have made big money in Wall Street. And yet if they I guess a lot of their philosophies may be very short sighted as opposed to, you know, the middle sized companies of America. Boy, it's it, it really is kind of a tangled web, and I guess I guess in the end too, um, we look at this. I guess is is normal for everything as we're trying to create healthcare solutions. We might be creating solutions that might move stock prices, but in the end, may not be good. You know, deep yeah. down. Yeah. Now the 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 right thing is always to try to find the right balance between. Uh, thinking short-term and thinking long-term. Uh, in, in economic parlance, everything has trade-offs, and you need to sort of figure out the, the best way to navigate between the two extremes. Yeah, interesting. There's also this dot-com bomb I want to talk about as well, and are we overinflating some of these uh, tech companies? Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Pressman. He is a professor of economics at Colorado State University and emeritus professor of economics and finance from Monmouth, Monmouth University and uh, also serves as the North American editor of the Review of Political Economy and associate editor of the Eastern Economic Journal. We're talking about an article, Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot, trying to demystify, if we can, take away the mystique, I guess, of, uh, of Wall Street. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back helping you uh, lead and be better leaders of your own financial welfare. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody, today we are talking about basically stock market 101, and uh, joined by Stephen Pressman, who's a professor of economics at Colorado State University, and he wrote an article, "Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot." He's helping us understand 
and hopefully de, uh, demystify, I guess, take away the mystique uh, surrounding Wall Street um, to help us understand. You know what? It might be better to just think of it as a dealership where people bring their cars to trade and you can go to one place to get and pick up a car um, or to pick up a stock. Have I, have I got that right, Stephen? Yep, exactly right. And it's it really is so the reason we need a Wall Street it's just it's just I guess it's more it's efficiency it's right it's it's the ability to transfer our cars and if I go to a dealership and they treat me right and I get a pretty good price then I can maybe turn my cars over more regularly is that what our goal with stocks is usually um, uh, in a lot of cases that's the goal with stocks if you if you think uh, uh, again in terms of the car analogy. If you have a car and the car is a little old and you feel as though you're ready for a new car, you really have two options. One is you can take out an ad and try to sell the car yourself, um, and then you don't know who's going to come by. You don't know who's going to see the ad. You don't know what kind of a price you're going to get. You don't know when you're going <clears> to <throat> be able to sell it. Or the other option is you take it to a car dealer, and the car dealer will offer you a price, and you'll sell it immediately. Right. And in terms of sort of convenience, uh, you're much better off going to a car dealer than you are holding on to the car and then trying to sell it on your own. Yeah. Um, and the stock market does that. It, it gives people what uh, economists call liquidity. It gives you the ability to get rid of something that you don't want anymore. And... Um one of the things I wonder, because one of the ideas you brought up is sometimes these companies will go to the stock market to to raise money. They'll put their company up on the market and you know offer shares, and those new shares can then be sold, and that might generate some money to create new products and other things. Is but that's really, I guess, not what the majority of the stock market is being used for. That's correct. All of the all of the things that flash on the screens and make front-page news when there's a big increase or a big decrease are basically used cars. The, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, those are all old, well-established companies. And it's, the stock has been out there for many, many years, in some cases decades and decades. And it's just the price of the stock based on, on trading that particular day or in some cases that particular minute. And that's all that's happening is the price of the existing shares are going up and down. And those were the shares that at some point way back in time were shares that were printed up and sold because the company needed some more money. Hmm. Um, and so new firms that are starting up um, will print up shares of stock to try to obtain money to expand. And those are called uh, IPOs, initial yeah. public offerings. And that's actually... Now, one of the, the, the functions of a stock market that's good and important is it provides money to firms that are now thinking of moving from an intermediate size to a large size. And now it has access to lots and lots of money. Um, and also, uh, people might be willing to buy the shares of stock because they know that on a moment's notice, they could go to a broker or a dealer and just sell the stock. Yeah, and, and be done. And they're in and out of it, which I guess leads to kind of the the day trader mentality where people could be selling, you know, they could just, they could keep the stock for half a day, right? Or a few minutes and just ride it for a little bit and then sell it. Yeah, and it, 
it, it's it's even worse than that, and this is this is sort of the part of the stock market that I don't like the uh, the day traders uh, or the the minute traders or really the the millisecond traders. Um, uh, Michael Lewis's Flash Boys, um, an excellent book, described uh, the the building of a cable between Chicago and New Jersey to try to be able to make trades. Um, uh, just uh, a few milliseconds before everybody else. So if some news becomes public by sitting at a terminal and hitting buy or sell, wow. they could sell or buy before everybody else by just a tiny fraction of a second. And they're able to make money because they get in faster than anybody else. They've made their money, and then they can get out, and they've, they've made their money. Yeah. But I think the real question is, I mean, is this something that contributes to a well-functioning economy? I mean, is this what we want to, you know, some of our best minds to do? Right, no. Sit and, and trade stocks, hold on to them for a fraction of a second, and then sell them to make a, a large sum of money. That just doesn't seem to me to be something that will lead to the long-term viability and growth and, and functioning uh, of an economy. Oh, no, I, I agree. And uh, almost it seems like kind of just as maybe dangerous is so many people that jump onto a, an initial IPO and that they're excited about because they use Snapchat. And yet, mm-hmm. and so all of a sudden, Snapchat, is it possible for it to be so overvalued because of just enthusiasm and excitement that it, but it's not, doesn't actually carry the worth? Yeah, well, for for most IPOs, it's really very difficult to know what these firms are worth. Yeah, um, you know, there's no there's no long term history of what these firms have done. There's no way to track, you know, the way we could track for like a retail outlet what sales have been and what profits have been over dozens and dozens of years. Right. And there's no way to assess. Okay, wh- you know, what are they? What are they doing in terms of expansion? That's a little bit different from what they've done before. And is this likely to be a little bit better or a little bit worse? Those are reasonably good things that you know are, we should be able to make estimates about. But when you have a brand new company that really hasn't been out there for a long time and is now trying to expand in a massive way. We've got no history to rely on to be able to figure out whether or not this is going to wind up making a lot of money or not. And then it becomes driven by human psychology. Mm. Which may not be as, I mean, as, as healthy, I guess. And one of the things I worry about is, is there a bubble? We hear people talking about there might be a bubble out there with some of these tech companies as they actually settle into what they might actually be worth. Is the market going to correct itself uh, you know, is that is that a natural function of this market, or is it too inflated by day tra- traders and others uh, who are in the market? Uh, well, probably the best uh, measure of whether stocks are inflated or not that people look at is the um, ratio of uh, uh, stock prices relative to the earnings of the firm. And historically, um, over a hundred years or so. Uh, for the S&P 500, that ratio has been somewhere around 15, and now it's somewhere close to 18. Huh. So it's a little bit higher, but it's not 
enormously higher than it's been historically. Yeah. Is it's it's interesting too because we have our 401k's we have so much wrapped up into this and yet really so many of us i feel like are are so uneducated about it what would you recommend to the listeners to make sure that they are they're not going in and buying the lemon or just you know taking the advice of somebody that maybe just trying to you know make money for themselves um, well, there, there, there are a couple of general rules, um, and uh, the, the general rules are, number one, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, and that means that you should have uh, stocks that are somewhat diversified. Um, a, a good way to diversify is just to buy some mutual fund, which, is, uh, it, which purchases the stocks in the S&P 500. So basically, you own 500 different companies. They're all well-established companies, uh, S&P 500 companies. And then the second rule is, since the stock market is to some extent completely irrational and you never know when there's going to be a boom or a bust, the best strategy is generally just buy and hold. Yeah, stay in. Um, Stay in. Don't panic when things get really horrible. Um, don't start buying when things are going way up, thinking it's going to go up forever. And then, you know, the third thing is find a mutual fund which has very low fees. Um, think about going to a car dealership. Um, you want to go to a car dealership that's going to give you the lowest price, um, which basically means that the car dealership that's making the least amount of money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want you don't want to end up spending all this money just to get the car. Yeah, and be under. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to pay more than you have to yeah. for the car that you buy, and you don't want to pay more than you have to for the stocks that you own. So you want to keep your costs of buying as low as possible, and you want to diversify. And diversify just means buy buy some indexed fund uh, with relatively low costs, and then just sit on the damn thing. Yeah. Do, do you sense? Um we talk a lot about President Trump. We hear a lot of news about how, you know, foreign nations interpret his his personality and some of his behavior is because if the stock market demands some pretty predictable, consistent um, and, and actually thrives in its consistency of, of the status of the country. Um, do we need to worry about a president that maybe is willing to mix it up a little bit more, maybe make a comment that others may not make? Uh, yes, I, I, I certainly worry about uh, what the president is going to be tweeting at 3 o'clock in the morning and how that might affect both the stock market in general and particular companies. Yeah. Um, and so that, that certainly is a worry. Um, and uh, as long as we've got a president who's completely unpredictable and can do weird things at any point in time, we need to worry about the potential for greater uh, volatility in the stock market. Because we, we see that he could bring down the stock in a company by 10, 5%, 10%, 3% by just simply dissing their product or taking them on. I mean, it's a, the companies now are preparing for him with PR blitzes to be able to respond immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and remember, he can also do good for companies. Absolutely. As well. So it works. It works both ways. 
Yeah, I guess, yeah, that that becomes a whole new world of politics, doesn't it? Trying to manage um, manage his mercurial ways. Well, we appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you so much for your great insight and your great work there as professor of economics at Colorado State University. Thank you again for having me. You bet. We'll have you back. Uh, making it simple, folks, taking something as complicated as Wall Street and helping us understand it using a great metaphor, the used car lot. We'll take a break, my friends, helping you be the best in the world. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. When you're alone and feeling down in the dumps, be grateful you don't live in town town. I have lived here a little less than a year, and it really blows town town. Just look at the incompetence of the mayor of the city. His power plants and public parks are anything but pretty. How did he win? The spies fly much higher here. You can't escape all the humming of drones in the air above town, town. You're gonna hate it here, town, town. Get out while you can, town, town. Everyone's watching you. Town, town. You'd better scurry, there's a mysterious slurry moving down the road. Town, town, don't hang around, the noxious gas will surround you and melt your clothes. Town, town, so head down to the border and immediately cross over, or you'll be decomposing long before the night is over, rotting alive. The nights are so scary here, so please remember we warned you, we told you to steer clear of town, town, a grimy place for sure, town, town, don't stay a minute more, town, town, death is waiting for you, town, 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 town. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeffrey uh, spinning some vinyls for us. Hey, um, because because Jeff just played the uh, Town Town song, I think it's important that I update everybody on my my adventure as um, the mayor of Townton Abbey. The this is my sim my simulated city from the game Sim City that I play on my phone. Uh, I have grown my own town. I wanted to get a feel, a little taste for what President Trump is trying to do. And so I built my own town called Townton Abbey. And I have a just a booming downtown area called Towntown. Um, but the this, this city is up to 123,000, if we're rounding people, 123,000 uh, fans, raving fans, with a 98% happiness. Raving lunatics? No, 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 raving fans. Not lunatics, but they're really happy with what's going on in Townton Abbey. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, anyway, the people are happy. A lot of neat things are happening. We just opened up uh, the um, lighthouse. It's now there and available. Pretty soon I'll be opening up some yeah, other you, beach amenities. You had to get rid of, of that problem of all those ships crashing. Yeah, yeah. Because I need my ships to come in. That's how we, that's how we pay for a lot of the goods. Um, that's how we also – I also opened up an airport, which is a really big thing. Um, I also just opened up my mountain resort area and, and just started putting some condos up there in the mountain resort area. And there's actually a decline in passengers being removed from the airplanes too. No, that's interesting. We, we did have an issue uh, removing – violently removing two or three people from airplanes. And I've decided to give them a free lunch or – they can get tased and dragged off the plane. A free lunch? That's all it takes. So it's huh? either a free lunch to move your seat or you, we have to tase you. So most people are taking the lunch. Yeah. Anyway, Townsend Abbey, it's doing so well. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't want to brag. But to be a mayor with 98% happiness. And by the way, my people were at 100% happiness until I had to do some reconstruction. Um, but Are you referring to B? To B? The the singer in that song who was clearly not pleased with Town Town. No, 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 no. No, yeah, B B I don't know where B is. She can't be we can't find her. B is conveniently, missing. conveniently. She's I think she went to live with her family in another town. Aren't they all dead? I think it's called Simpsonville. And um, we accept refugees in Simpsonville, and they're flocking. They're coming in droves. Yeah, ours are coming in drones. I am about. I'm about. Uh, I'm about three golden keys away from being able to open up a drone center. On, you already had drones. No, You've I, got drones spying on people. No. That's why there's the happiness level because no. they don't feel like they can be anything else. No, I don't have that yet. But but we're working for it. So if you're if you're if you're a member of Townton Abbey, if you're on Sim City, you can go find my my city and buy my goods. Just just look up my marketplace, Townton Abbey. Um, there's no money being made here for real. It's just I'm I'm going to grow this town to about a million people, and then I'm going to look to international takeovers where I start owning the world. And slowly start making it be the way I want it to be. <laughs> and luckily, we have a few citizens who are wise to your act already. Yeah, my mom's all over it. She's really mad about how aggressive I'm being on it. So, anyway, just a little update on Townton Abbey. A lot of people, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people calling in wondering. So there you have it. We'll take a break, my friends. Next hour, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, helping you be the best you can be. We'll be back.